is episode 14, A View to a Kill. A silicon chip is captured from the Soviets and found to be identical to a prototype British design capable of withstanding the intense electromagnetic radiation of a nuclear blast. The British suspect industrialist Max Zorin of leaking details of the design to the Russians. When James Bond is sent to investigate, he finds that Zorin is stockpiling silicon chips and mysteriously drilling near the San Andreas Fault. That is the movie in a nutshell, Jay. What did you remember about this before you rewatched it recently? I think this is one of the movies that I remember quite a bit about Andy. So I remembered Max Zorin. I remembered Mayday. Also remembered, obviously, this is Roger Moore's last Bond film. I also remember the the fire engine scene. The you know the chase that um, Bond has um, when he's being chased by the police. Also remembered the Eiffel Tower scene with the chase with Mayday and Bond. And also, I couldn't remember exactly how it was happening, but I knew that Zorin's horses were being drugged or spiked, but I couldn't quite remember exactly. I remember them being manipulated, um, enhanced somehow, but I couldn't quite remember how that was being done. What about you, Andy? What was your memory like on this one? So a pretty similar list, really. I remembered quite a few things. I remembered, obviously, Zorin and Mayday as the two main villains. I remember the ski scene. Um, Moore is famous for his ski scenes by now. He's had quite a few. I remember a scene where Bond is driving half a car, which always stands out to me as, as one of those memorable, quirky things. I remember the stables, where there was kind of like a, an elevator that went down underground into some sort of lab. I remember the chase scene with the fire engine, and also... The, the horse ride that Bond and Zorin took. That was a really, really cool scene, which I'm sure we'll get into detail of later on. A few bits of information, uh, just for reference. The main villains, Max Zorin and Mayday, we've, we've discussed already. There's also Dr. Mortner and Scarpine. And in terms of Bond girls, we have the aforementioned Mayday. We have Stacey Sutton, Kimberly Jones and Paula Ivanova. Yes, and the theme song is A View to a Kill by Duran Duran. And the opening credits, so very similar to previous ones that we've had with Roger Moore, but we've seen 007 text printed in neon UV on the model's breast in this one, but also there's lots of UV makeup on the models, which is new. We've also seen in the opening scene the the sniper scope as well. And... We get the usual Bond silhouettes. Roger Moore is quite consistent in the Moore films. He's also appearing in the opening credits. And we've got the, the gun shooting neon lasers as well. So definitely a more of a modern feel, the 80s feel, I would say, in the opening credits. We also see an ice sculpture in the in the opening credits. And we have, I like this bit, Andy, and you've got the, the lyrics playing where it says, Dance in Fire. And that's synced to where the models are kind of dancing in the flames. So I quite like how they link that up. Um, next thing that we are monitoring is the body count, the all-important body count. And this is James Bond kills only. And there's five this in A View to a Kill. So we can obviously see how that ranks later on in the podcast. Yeah, thanks, Jay. I think five seems low, but I guess we'll find out compared to those later on. Let's talk about gadgets. There's quite the list this time around. We have a ring camera. We have an electric shaver that's also a bug detector, a mini tape recorder, some polarizing sunglasses, a check a checkbook imprint, and a credit card lockpick. 
that's, uh, that's quite the selection that Bond's got to choose from this time round. He introduces himself as Bond, James Bond, but again, it's quite a long time before we hear it. It's over an hour and a half. Uh, one hour, 33 minutes and 56 seconds to be precise, so that's quite a way into the film before we hear the line. There's no martini this time around, but we do see Bond wearing a hat and Bond throwing a hat. Although there's a little bit of a asterisk against that, which we will discuss a little bit later on. Uh, but Jay, what stood out to you as your favourite scene when you rewatched this? So for me, Andy, there was one scene that really stood out, and it's quite a long scene, really. So you've got the initial bit where Bond is in the restaurant um, in the Eiffel Tower, and he's enjoying. Well, I, I wouldn't say he's enjoying. He's kind of tolerating the butterfly show that's being taken place um, as well. And then we obviously see Mayday enter the, the restaurant. And then we see the Eiffel Tower chase, which I think is really good because Mayday's got a bit of a lead. She She's, what well, you obviously don't know it's Mayday at that point. And she's being chased by Bond and she's throwing various things at Bond um, on the chase. And she then she gets to the top and parachutes off. And then we've got um, a chase then on the ground with the boat as well. And I think I like, it, it's about, must be close to 10 minutes, that scene. Or approaching 10 minutes, between 5 and 10 minutes. So I did like that. It's quite a long scene, but I think that's probably my favourite. But that's quite early, really, in the film. It's not the opening credits, but it's 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 in the first quarter of the film, I'd say. So that, uh, for me, I think it's probably Pete then. What about you, Andy? What was your favourite scene? So that was a good scene, but for me, there was there was two to choose from. One was quite a short scene, which was in the car wash when Mayday killed Tibbet. And around the same sort of time was my actual favourite scene, which was the horse riding scene with Bond and Zorin. So they've got Zorin and his goons all on horseback. There's uh, like a race course, I guess, for lack of a better term. There's, you know, with fences and, and such, and Bond and Zorin are having a bit of a competition against each other. And I just like the way that it kind of was different from the usual boat chase or car chase or ski chase that we've seen in a number of films now. I think this is the first, I think it's the first one where it's a horseback chase. Uh, but also just the way that the the course was rigged to favour Zorin and you know every time he jumped a fence there was someone to raise it a little bit higher or make the water a bit uh, longer, things like that. It was a really well done scene um, and then obviously led to his eventual capture, but it was uh, a nice change of pace from the usual kind of stunt-filled things that we've seen. I f yeah, I agree. I think that is a good scene. I, I think it just goes back to the points we've mentioned a few times in terms of just before that, if memory serves, and obviously we're going to cover this later on, just before that is when Zoming gets confirmation that Bond is actually a secret spy isn't it on the old computer i think before that i think yeah i think i think you're correct i think it's around the same sort of time so it's one of those things where he, he's kind of playing around the 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 villain is playing around with bond instead of doing the efficient kill he he gets his henchman and he wants a a horse race um around like you said the track maybe it's you know because he's a megalomaniac it's just about his ego so he's trying to prove, you know, he's better, beat him in a race, but then, you know, doff him up, bond, you know, with various um, henchmen as well. 
I don't know. That's just like some of the thoughts I think there um, of that particular scene. Yeah, there's, there's a bit of a sadistic side to it, isn't there? Kind of. Yeah. Kind of uh, a predator toying with his prey a little bit. It's kind of probably the mentality. Yeah, it was a really good scene. I thought. And it's, I suppose, it's one. Of, I'm thinking back of the, the, you know, we've seen 14 films now. That must be one of the few times where Bond actually runs away from a fight. I can't think of many where he's actually, you know, he, oh, you know, we see it on a Majesty's Secret Service where he's running away from Blofeld's henchmen and he meets Tracy. But there's not many times, is there, where he's actually trying to escape from the, the villain or the henchmen? There's not many that spring to mind, really. I think when he does escape or when he's trying to escape, it's usually because he's rescuing a Bond girl or an ally of some description. At least that's how I'm thinking of it in my mind. But this one started very much as he was going to go man-to-man, but then realised quickly that things were not going his way, so discretion was the better part of valour. So nice nice change of pace and, and mindset. And maybe that just adds to the... Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The aura of Max Zorin, the kind of the intimidation factor. But anyway, let's let's move on. Very important question coming up now, Jay. How many times did you reach for your phone while you were watching this? So I think I've said previously, Andy, I'm trying to think last week whether I was very disciplined, you know, I've, I've said before I'm quite disciplined on these, but I must admit twice I checked my phone this week, but they're both Bond related. So the first one was when Chuck Lee came on and he looked very familiar, but I couldn't quite place him. So I, I googled Chuck Lee's resume, but also when Mayday and Bond was interacting, I recall either seeing something or reading something um, years ago about their relationship and the fact that they didn't like each other. So I did do a bit of googling about their relationship as well. So they were both Bond related. I wasn't checking or, you know, checking the boxing schedule. I think maybe it was the week before or checking any kind of football score. So it was podcast related, Andy. Um, so I hope you can forgive me for um, my two times checking the phone. What about you this week? Uh, so similarly, mine, mine was for research purposes, but just the once. And we're, we're going to discuss it a little bit later on, so I'm not going to give too much away now, but it was right at the very start, there was something I needed to Google that just took me a little bit by surprise when I saw it. But we'll we'll get into that in a few moments' time. But here on the rating room, the all-important thing is the rating. What did you give this out of 10? Yeah, so I'm not going to go into much detail now, Andy. I'll just give a quick overview. So I gave it 5 out of 10, and I struggled a bit with this film. I remember watching this film quite a bit as a kid because there's certain scenes that really, I really remembered while we were watching it. But there's, I think, you know, Roger Moore... Um, is looking too old. Mayday was okay. Max Owen was okay. I I felt the plot seemed very similar to um, Goldfinger as well in terms of there's a megalomaniac and Max Owen obviously was focusing on computer chips and Goldfinger was focusing on gold obviously bullions and there was manipulating um the the supply 
of the gold and microchips. So I, I felt that was similar. So Andy, that's my five out of ten. What about you, Andy? So I, I quite like this film. I've given it a seven out of ten. We're going to discuss later on, like you said, but I think this was a real return to form. I've used that phrase before, I'm sure, but this this felt like a, a good way to bow out for Roger Moore. A very solid effort. Seven out of ten for me. But that's just our opinion. What did your wife think of this one? Yeah, so the first thing the missus said before we even started watching it, I got, loaded it up on Amazon, and she said, it's a very weird title, so A View to a Kill. She She wasn't really liking the title and I don't think it's the strongest one Andy if I'm honest um, as well but also she commented that Bond sleeps with all the Bond girls in this film whereas usually you know when we've picked out Bond girls in in the previous episodes he doesn't always well he doesn't sleep with all of them usually on screen anyway that we see whereas on this one we see Bond actually sleep with all four so I thought that was a good point because I don't know, you know, about you, Andy, when you rewatch it, but for me, I don't really clock how many Bond girls he sleeps with. I know at the beginning of the season, we talked about, well, I remember talking about, I was surprised how many Bond girls he had in the earlier films, you know, when it was Sean Connery, whereas the missus picked out, you know, oh, Bond slept with all four in this movie. That's That, does, that doesn't usually happen. So I thought that was a, a good observation. Also, and I don't want to generalise this as all women, but she picked out as well Mayday in terms of a fashion sense, but also the makeup Mayday wears. So the fashion is, I know this was in the 80s, but Mayday's fashion was quite futuristic and very contrasting with what Zorin was wearing, but also the henchmen. And also when they are at, Zorin's mansion and the stables the the hired help had these gentleman attire and colonial hairstyles so I don't know if that's it, the correct terminology but do you know what I mean in terms of the the white hair and the um I don't know what you call it uh, this is a podcast and I'm visualizing to Andy with my hand I can see oh, you're, you're, you're almost doing the uh, the dance from tragedy for by steps is what it looks like <laughs> to me but I think I know what you mean yeah so I thought, you know, she picked that out. I think that's fair enough. But also, she she said Mayday's makeup was very dodgy. And it was. And I think that is probably influenced, or Mayday's makeup influenced the opening credit scenes, you know, with the heavy UV makeup as well. It was really striking. But also, and I know we've commented on this in the last few episodes as well, Roger Moore was looking very old. And from her view was this was definitely the right time to leave in the franchise if not maybe should have left one or two films earlier which was interesting because it kind of conflicts with what you just said about Bond Roger Moore coming out uh, as a I think you said was it a good ending or a fitting finish to his tenure yeah it was I think it was a strong end to his tenure as Bond yeah I can't disagree that he is looking very old at this point and has for a while and being a secret agent is a young man's game really well yeah i was gonna say you must be doing something right if you're getting into your 50s and you're still alive being a secret agent and you assume i don't know when bond was recruited i don't know what age but he's obviously in the game for a long time 
Well, up to this point, it's been at least 23 years. If Assuming that Doctor No to A View to a Kill is a continuous story, which we're assuming it is. So, it's having a good run. Yeah. Um, Andy, have you managed to get the missus involved with Roger Moore? Or has that the ship come past now, sailing? Has she seen any Roger Moore films, do you know? I'm not sure that she has. And she showed no interest in watching this with me at all. This is going to be a very one-sided segment every week, isn't it? That's for sure. <laughs> Until we get to season two, maybe. Yeah, we'll we'll have to pick something. I'll, I'll find out what she wants to watch. <laughs> maybe maybe that's how we decide what season two is. What do you want to watch, dear? <laughs> but no, no interest from her at this time. But you know, I'll I'll keep plugging away. See if I can convince her to watch at least one with me. Yeah, and to be fair, Andy. The missus was flagging in this movie uh, as well. She was on the phone a lot. Um, they, you know, if we're tracking how many times she was on the phone, I would have done a lot of little stick gates, you know, the tally charts that you do with her. And she was falling asleep a couple of times again. And I know I said this, you know, to you before, Andy, and the listeners will know that. She's just looking forward to the um, Pierce Brosnan films. So I'm hoping her attention is she hope, I hope she's more focused when Brosnan starts because I think she's got a soft spot for Pierce Brosnan. I suppose it depends what kind of focus she has, really. Let's um, let's move on. Let's t- talk a few more facts about this film. So runtime was 2 hours and 11 minutes. Again, similar to what we've seen in the past, maybe slightly longer this time around. Released in 1985. And for the third film in a row, we have John Glenn as the director. Andy, as... As our listeners know, I like to talk about the budget and the box office stats um, each week before we kind of dig in a bit deeper into the film. So, A View to a Kill had a budget of $30 million. So that means it's the second most expensive Bond film behind Octopussy, which was $36 million. And Andy, you picked up on something here, didn't you? Yeah, I read that the budget was $35 million, but they just couldn't use it all. Well, they didn't use it all, so it came in at five million under budget, hence the thirty. And I, I just wonder how, why, and you know what happened to to make it so that you had five million dollars left over at the end. Seems unusual. Yeah, I don't know what happens to that five million. Does it just stay with the um, producers? Maybe they were anticipating all the futuristic clothing that Mayday was going to wear. It was going to be a lot more expensive. Yeah, and why would you admit to it? If, you're, if you've given $35 million and you've only spent 30 I'd maybe uh, pocket some of that and say, oh no, this was a really expensive film shoot. The, the, these clothes, I've always had them. And the new Ferrari outside. <laughs> yeah, you'd just pull it to um, extras, wouldn't you? Miscellaneous. Expenditure. Yeah, miscellaneous. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Overheads, yeah. Okay, um, so moving on to the box office stats. So, A View to a Kill took 152.6 million. So, when you adjust that, that's just over $410 million in today's money. So, this means it's actually the worst performing when you adjust it for box office performance in the franchise so far, which for me, I'm not surprised because of where I ranked it. And also, I think it's not the strongest Roger Moore entry. Yeah, it's fascinating how 
successful the franchise is as a whole and then drilling down into the individual entries and the adjustment for inflation as well is always a an interesting one because of economic times and changes that may be beyond the control of of a film studio so there's there's all kind of things to factor into that we're just going to throw some numbers out there and and see how it how it ranks but it's it's a fascinating topic i think another fascinating fact was um some of the casting choices so the original choice to play Max Zorin was actually David Bowie. Bowie decided against it, and then the role was offered to Sting, who also turned it down. So that's two very I would say, unusual names, maybe, but certainly not two people you would associate much with acting. I know, I know Bowie's been in a handful of movies in his time, but I wouldn't necessarily say he is a big-time film star. And Sting, I'm not sure if he's ever acted. I'd have to look that up, but nothing comes to mind in terms of any films that he's been in. No, it's interesting though, but they they have a very similar look about him. And they're quite quirky, aren't they, David Bowie and Sting? And that when I when we kind of researched this, that's where I think my my thought was coming from in terms of oh, I can see why they did approach David Bowie, because he has that kind of um crazy demeanor that's the right word in terms of his appearance so i think he would have been a, a good fit and i think that's to a lesser degree sting but obviously they've gone with um christopher walken yeah with with bowie i think there's that element of eccentricity that i think would have been a, a good visual dynamic at the very least but another interesting casting choice was the role of stacy sutton which was played by Tanya Roberts, but the original choice was Priscilla Presley. Um, but she had to be replaced because of her contract with Dallas. But again, another interesting choice for original. I mean, think of how the movie would go if it was David Bowie and Priscilla Presley. Yeah, I agree. Although I don't really, I don't really know much what Priscilla Presley has done, if I'm honest. Uh, Priscilla Presley was in the Naked Gun movies. Opposite uh, Leslie Nielsen. Classic films. I was I watched one of those the other day, actually. It was the one that is, I think it's number two. Is that the one where it says like two and a half? Yes. Yeah, I watched that one. And <laughs> where he's, I know we're digressing, but where he's, he's invited to a, a, a fancy meal with some big wigs. And he's, I think he's trying to eat a lobster. And he's like with a and then he got a woman next to him, and he's just like eating her by mistake, and he's just increase. It's I don't know. I wouldn't say it's childish humour, but it's very visual, isn't it? Yeah, very, very slapstick. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm a big fan. And we, we we could continue down this road all day, but we'll get back on track in a second. But uh, did you ever watch the original Police Squad TV series, which is what the the movie was based on? They're just every few seconds there was some sort of visual or audio gag that was just silly yeah I, I saw some of them when i was a a kid teenager um but it's the films that are really because there's three of them isn't there there's three films they only actually made six episodes of police squad it wasn't a long-running series at all but obviously very successful six episodes turned into three films yeah so moving back to bond so this is the first bond film with a premiere outside the uk so this opened in San Francisco in May 1985 and the British premiere was held in June the same year 
in London. So I thought that was quite interesting, Andy, because obviously the film is set, the second half of the film is set in San Francisco and you obviously got the, the famous Golden Gate Bridge as well. And that probably influenced why they did it in San Francisco. Yeah, there does seem to be a increased American presence in in a few of the the more films, particularly. Yes, definitely, definitely. Also, the Double O Seven stage at Pinewood Studios burnt down in nineteen eighty four. So Broccoli had the studio rebuilt in four months, which is obviously very impressive. And the soundstage was renamed the Albert R. Broccoli's 007 stage. So a nice little tribute to Broccoli. So yeah, a nice a nice touch, I think, calling it, uh, naming the stage after Albert R. Broccoli. Shall we talk Lois Maxwell, a.k.a. Miss Moneypenny? Because this is, I think, yeah, this I is think the so. last Bond film to feature Lois Maxwell. And she's appeared in all 14 up to now. So I think probably just do a little bit of a memorial. I don't want to say memorial, but that's, that's depressing. Let's do, we'll do a little bit of a... I thought you were going to, you were going to say minutes, minute silence. <laughs> <or something>. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is this is a happy podcast. Let's let's give her some props for, for the hard work she's done. So a little bit about Lois Maxwell. She was born in Canada in 1927, died in 2007. She ran away from home at the age of 15 to join the Canadian Army during World War II. And she became part of the Army Entertainment Corps, travelling Europe during the war, doing music and dance numbers to entertain the troops. And the truth about her age wasn't discovered until she, the group reached London. Uh, to avoid court-martial and deportation back to Canada, she enrolled in the prestigious Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts, which is where she met fellow student Roger Moore. And we discussed this, didn't we, where... Lois Maxwell and Roger Moore knew each other when Roger Moore first took over. I remember talking about a little tidbit then. So she travelled to Hollywood at the age of 20 and won a Golden Globe Award for New Star of the Year actress. She also appeared in a 1949 Life magazine photo shoot with Marilyn Monroe. So Andy, I did Google that because um, Monroe is obviously a very... Um, attractive lady and I was curious to see if I could find that photo shoot and I did and Lois Maxwell she does look quite different I don't know if it's because I don't know if it's the same with you you know because obviously we watched them each week and she's been in all the films so far I kind of forget what she looked like when she first started if you know what I mean it's more my the recent memory of her is obviously when she's older so when I looked at that photo with Monroe it did take me a few seconds to actually figure out which, because there's not just two of them. There's a group of ladies in the photo shoot. Okay, that's that's interesting. Yeah, I've not seen that particular photo shoot, but I'm not going to have a look. One moment. <laughs> not right now. I'm kidding, of course. So she is also the last cast member to depart from the franchise who appeared in the first film, Doctor No. She outlasted three Bond actors in her 14 films. So I think that's obviously... Very, you know, a credit to her, really. Yeah, she's a staple of the Bond films at, at this point. Lois Maxwell actually asked that Money Penny be killed off, but instead Broccoli recast the role. And What's your view on that, Andy? Sorry to interrupt you. It's, it's an interesting one because can you imagine a Bond film without Money Penny? I'm not sure I could. 
but I wonder, in hindsight, whether at the point you recast Bond, is that also the time to recast other other characters like a Money Penny or an M or a Q, for example? Because you have you have that kind of you have the consistency of the same actor in role for certain parts, but the inconsistency that you've got different actors in role for for different parts. So it adds a, an interesting dynamic. I wonder whether at the point of Connery finishing, should that have been the point for Maxwell finishing? I don't know. I agree, and I think we kind of touched on this in our bonus episode as well when we talked about the next Bond, where we were saying about like what you just said then about recasting actors once the new Bond actors um, has changed. But no, I think it would be very different, especially if she was killed off. Would that you know? Because obviously Bond has lost his wife. Would Money Penny be killed off by the main villain? What kind of repercussions would there be? Uh, I'm assuming M would just get a, a new secretary, so then that would just be a new character in the franchise. And then would would Bond have that interaction, that flirtiness with a new secretary? I wonder. But I think for me, the, it was the right decision to keep her in and recast her. I tend to agree. She's a, she's a staple character. Can't can't remove her. Uh, Maxwell herself made a further three movies after A View to a Kill. And with this being her final appearance as Miss Moneypenny, her total screen time across 23 years of Bond movies to this point was just one hour. And she delivered fewer than 200 words. Now that's, those are stats that surprise me because for someone to say that I've been in 14 movies as a semi-main character but only do 200 words and less than an hour screen time that's that's quite shocking that was very surprising when it came up in our research i wonder which film she had the most lines in and most screen time just a fault if any listeners know that feel free to contact us on our, any of our social media accounts but i'm trying to think if there's a particular film off top of my head andy where she seemed to have more dialogue I, I'm wondering whether this film may be one of them, and I base that purely on the fact that she appeared in more than one scene. Because when you think of Money Penny, you think of her in M's office when Bond arrives and then goes to see M, and that's generally the only time you'll see her. But in this, she's in multiple scenes, and I wonder if there are any other movies where she appears in multiple scenes or has a has a greater role in the movie and i wonder if this is is one of those because we we do see her a couple of times so that's our little tribute or highlight for lois maxwell as she passes the the flame to someone else and we can pick that up in the next episode next week so i'm just going to do a quick continuity and goof one now andy after bond gets down from the Eiffel tower to chase mayday Bond steals a car and while Bond is driving down the stairs you can clearly see there's a red sticker on the right side of the car but after the car is cut in half it's not there and I don't know if you picked this up Andy because I know you said you remembered the the half car bit but it's something um, that I picked up while watching it but also in, in terms of the research. I can't say I noticed that but it's a, it's a good spot because you 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 would assume that it was the same half car that he was driving earlier when it was a complete car, but maybe maybe it wasn't. Another couple of 
uh, kind of goofs to mention. So there's a scene where Mayday jumps off the Eiffel Tower, and you can see a long ramp suspended at the top of the tower, which was needed to give the stuntman sufficient run-up so that he flew clear of the structure. But obviously, they, for some reason, they negated to edit that out of shot or, or shoot it in such a way that it was visible. And also, there's a scene where Bond is in the sinking car, and in the initial shots, you can see some tree branches quite close to the car, but then later on in the same scene, the car is is near the centre of the lake. So there's just a bit of geographical error, I would call that one. The rain room. Uh, let's get into the film. But before we do, this is the point where I used my one phone check allowance. Because right at the start of the film, a pre-film disclaimer came on the screen, which said, Neither the names are in, nor any other name or character in this film is meant to portray a real company or actual person. And that got me interested enough to pause at this point to check what the hell was going on. Because I had no idea why that disclaimer was there, what it was all about. So, uh, and I'm sure it was the same for you as well, not necessarily from a Google perspective, but it obviously stands out as something very unusual. And it turns out there's a company called Zoran that operated in Silicon Valley that made computer chips, and they threatened the makers of James Bond for defamation before the film was released. So Zoran and the producers agreed to include the disclaimer to avoid that kind of defamation legal action. And it was actually just an oversight on the pre-production team. Uh, it wasn't checked out beforehand properly to see if there were any copyright or legal issues. So I don't know if that's just pure coincidence that they've come up with this name or whether there was some kind of underhand intentional dig at these people. It sounds it sounds like just one of those strange coincidences that could have led to a massive legal dispute but was suppressed with this disclaimer. So a couple of things come to mind, Andy, on this. was So the first thing was... The person who is checking on this, was it basically Friday afternoon and he, he or she just thought, oh, no one, no, no one's called Zorin around and just didn't undertake the, um, the necessary checks. So Friday afternoon thing, or someone knew or had a relative that worked at Zorin, Zoran, and thought, oh, you know, could there be potential of uh, some kind of payoff here? or free promotion and they they deliberately did that or this didn't bother doing the necessary checks so similar to a friday afternoon or or maybe they they just didn't care and didn't think the 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 actual company in silicon valley would object to it were my initial thoughts i like the friday afternoon one best though do you know how this could have been resolved take some of that five million leftover budget pay some people to do their job properly i'm just saying because in those days you couldn't just search engine it could you you would have to i don't know what checks you do like a, a yet whatever the american version of the yellow pages is i think it's just the yellow pages but, but I, could, I, could be wrong. I think yeah. so yeah i could be wrong any uh, americans out there who have heard of the yellow pages let us know and if you've never heard of the yellow pages let us know and then we know it's not the same. 
So now, yeah, so that's all the the bits before we've started watching the film. So we're, op- we're in the opening scene now. So this is before the music. And I know in the last few films, Andy, I've kind of picked out different differences with the gun barrel. But to be honest, there was nothing to note here. So a very quick one. I wanted to ha- mention the gun barrel just in case the listeners that like to hear about the gun barrel each week. But sorry to disappoint you. There was nothing that I noticed on there. So moving on, we're in Siberia now. So Bond finds a microchip on the corpse of 003. I don't recall how we found... I don't recall if we ever find out, Andy, how 003 died. So was he killed by the KGB or the Russian army? Or did he simply die of hypothermia after stealing the microchip and he's escaping? I, I don't know. I don't think it's ever clarified do you recall i don't and going back through my handwritten notes i wrote that bond is in the snow and he finds a body which turns out to be 003 and that's the extent of my note taking for this particular piece that which is an insight for the listeners out there just how lazy i am i don't even write full sentences in my notes (laughs) thank you for that andy (laughs) so also, another thing is Bond is wearing appropriate snow camo, so it's white. But the Russians are wearing green army outfits in the snow. So that just really stood out for me, Andy, that did. Were they expecting to go on a mission in the jungle and it was much colder than they thought? I think in, you know, because it's Siberia, I don't think it's like the UK where... It could be sunny today and then snowing the next day. I think over there it's just constantly snow. and Or maybe they just don't have the budget for snow camo and they've just got to wear the green outfit. Mm-hmm. I can't. I, I don't know what you call army outfits. Is it just army outfits? What's, what's, this, what's the correct terminology? Um, that is a good question. This feels like it's the... Um, boat plane situation it again. is yeah <laughs> is it is it the army camo clothing option <laughs> is it the is it the fatigues is that what they're called yeah i think it is the fatigues, fatigues yeah. so what are the snow ones called the cold fatigues <laughs> i don't know we don't know if anyone knows that or i can just ask my wife and she can make me feel small again about the whole the whole boat plane situation again anyway so as you mentioned andy bond is skiing again this in this film so moore's version of bond just loves skiing he he just loves it he does it there must be something in the contract about ski holidays but there were some dodgy green screen moments during this scene and we've seen this a few times throughout the franchise where it's it's blatant that he's he's not on location and he's in a studio at that point and it just, for me, it just takes takes me out of the moment. I'm a, I'm a bit more forgiving in the older Bonds because technology being as limited as it was back in the 60s, I kind of expect it. But 1985, and they've not got a better solution to the green screen situation. That's, that's really poor, in my opinion. So as part of the scene, Bond attaches the hook to the the baddie that's on the snowmobile and the baddie's hanging off the mountain. And he shouts something in Russian, but you can hear him say, Roger Moore. Which is, uh, 
I guess go, could go in the the goof continuity error piece, but I don't know if if that was intentional or whether that was a mistake that they forgot to edit out. But it was uh, quite noticeable. If there's anyone that speaks Russian, let us know what the, what the actual words were, because I couldn't really make out, so I can't even put it in Google Translate, Andy, for that. And I'm just thinking, unless we can get. I don't even think even in the screenplay would they would have the 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 dialogue that that person said. So if there's any Russian speaking listeners, feel free to let us know what the the actor said then. I would imagine the script at this point probably just said something like speaks Russian. <laughs> on the assumption that the script was written in English, of course. But also as part of this scene, there was something that I thought was really odd and out of place, and that's when Bond starts snowboarding. And the song "California Girls" by the Beach Boys starts playing, and I, I just didn't understand why this happened. I agree, Andy. That just seemed really out of place because, obviously, he's snowboarding, so he's not surfing. So he's not in a sunny country. He, it's not related to California at all. Although later on, it's San Francisco in California. I don't really know many places in America. It is indeed, yes. I've, I've maybe there. there's a link there, maybe. I don't know. It's, a, it's a very tenuous link. but It is very tenuous, yeah. yes. But yeah, it was when it came on, I definitely thought it was very, very strange. So Andy, this is something that I didn't remember, but I remembered when it happened, if that makes sense. So it wasn't something I remembered before watching it. But it was something I remembered as soon as it happened. So we see Bond escape via submarine disguised as an iceberg. But obviously, you know, it includes a Union Jack. Little um, paintwork on the inside of the hatch. And when that came on, that just reminded me of Octopussy with Bond and Q in a big air balloon. And we've seen Bond, obviously, with the Union Jack parachute before as well. So he just likes to um, really promote that he's... British, doesn't he? There's not very discreet about it that he's working for um, the Brits. No, and anyway. especially after he'd gone to the effort of wearing suitable camo, <laughs> and now he's just blatantly saying, "Look, I'm over here." I, I agree. And another thing that really sticks out was the the submarine slash iceberg seemed to include all the luxury mod cons, which just seems really unnecessary considering he's working for MI6 and it's got obviously um, it's got I don't know if it's wine or champagne I can't remember it's got a bed uh, that, um, a sofa some seating in there it's really luxurious but you would never see anything like that in real life I don't think especially not if you're working for the secret service or military you'd have probably like a little metal chair wouldn't you and a um, some kind of little bed, or even I don't even know, maybe a sleeping bag in there. It would be as basic as possible, that's for sure. But yeah, he he does like his mod cons. Bond does. So moving on now, so we're out of Siberia and we're on to the opening title sequence music. So we mentioned earlier, View to a Kill. Um, was sung by Duran Duran and it was written by Duran Duran and John Barry 
So the theme song was successful in the UK and the US charts. So it peaked at number one in the US charts and number two in the UK charts. So it was really successful. But also the theme song was nominated for a Golden Globe Award for Best Original Song, but lost out to Say You, Say Me by Lionel Richie from the film White Nights, which, Andy, you know I like to listen to a bit of YouTube when I'm doing this research on various songs that nearly made it or songs that were recorded but they went with a different version or songs that were sung by someone else but they either didn't like it or pulled out. And I did listen to the Lionel Richie song and it wasn't bad, but I must, I don't know if I'm being biased, but I do think A View to a Kill song should have won that one that year in the Golden Globe. Of the two, for me, A View to a Kill is by far the stronger song. I don't even think Say You Say Me is a particularly good Lionel Richie song. And he's he's had some bangers out in his time, but I would say that was one of his weaker ones, personally. Uh, but an interesting point around how this came about. So John Taylor, the bassist from Duran Duran, was, was chosen to do the song after he drunkenly approached Kobe Broccoli at a party um, and basically asked him to do it, I guess. And Taylor being a lifelong Bond fan, this would have been a dream for him. So it uh, just goes to show you, you've got to shoot your shot. From there, we're, we're at MI6 and then Ascot Racecourse. Uh, Bond enters, places his hat on the hat stand next to Miss Moneypenny's, and then he throws Moneypenny's hat to her before he enters M's office. So this is the asterisk I was talking about earlier, where he's technically thrown the hat, and he's paid homage to previous scenes where there's the hat thrown onto the stand, but he's done it in a slightly different way, and I thought that was a, a really nice way of doing it. Uh, an interesting no mention of Smallbone. So the listeners who tuned in last week, you'll remember that in Octopussy, Smallbone was the secretary of Miss Moneypenny or the assistant to Miss Moneypenny. And now she's no longer there. So is she still there? Does she still work there? Or was it just it was a day off? Yeah, it looks like she was in, in and out for that one film. And also, Andy, with this being... Lois Maxwell's last film if they did want to kill her off they had obviously set the foundations in Octopussy for Smallbone to potentially then be the, the new secretary for M but obviously it didn't work out there's more they could do with Smallbone just as a name really in terms of Bond innuendo ah, but let's let's move on from that very quickly before, before I say something that podcasts don't allow uh, Q is demonstrating remote control spy car and he's like a little kid at Christmas, isn't he? He, he is. Um, he's really innocent, isn't he? I think, you. Yeah. You think? I'm not so sure. Right, in terms of... Don't you reckon in terms of, like, the, the... I mean, as in how a child is innocent. He's, Do you know what I mean? He's got that enthusiasm. I think he's, yeah. he's really into his work. But I don't know if it's an innocence. Mm. I think there's a dark side. And obviously we saw in Octopussy where... When I mentioned about the the air balloon coming down, he does re- make a remark, doesn't he? When the ladies come to help him about maybe later or something. Yeah, that's that's his true colours right there. So then, M, so as Andy says, you know, Q's demonstrating a remote control car. And M tells Q to start the briefing. And Q is talking about microchips. But M then tells Q to kind of get on, hurry up, hurry up um, about it. We all know about microchips. So... There, he, I wouldn't say he's selling him off, but there's definitely an urgency there, isn't there? In terms of let's move this along now. We've got Bond here. 
you're here. Let's get these fins moving on. So Bond, obviously, you know, he has a debrief and not surprisingly, he knows about what they're, they're talking about. So this time he knows about the EMP technology that Q's talking about. And then M makes a comment to Bond that he has 35 minutes to get properly dressed. And I like this because Bond kind of looks taken back a bit and he kind of like, what, what do you mean? Like, what's happening? I'm like, because obviously he's all, Roger Moore's Bond is always very slick in terms of how he looks. And then obviously at that comment, then the scene cuts to Ascot at the horse races. That obviously explains why Moneypenny was dressed up as well. So it all, it all kind of links in. And we now see Max Sorin for the first time in the stands at Ascot as well. And the wife made a comment here to say that he looks like Draco Malfoy from Harry Potter. And I think that's probably to do with the striking, striking blonde hair that Max Sorin has. Confession time, I've only seen the first two Harry Potter films, so Draco Malfoy would still have been a boy when I last saw him. But I, I get what you mean. Yeah, I get the, the reference. Uh, speaking of Max Zorin, though, I think we've mentioned a few times he's played by Christopher Walken. And this is the first time an Academy Award winning actor has played a Bond villain. Uh, Walken had won the Best Supporting Actor Award for his role in The Deer Hunter. Zorin's horse wins the race. Uh, Sir Godfrey Tibbet, who's a horse trainer, believes the horse is using drugs. But the drug screening came back negative. So that's just an interesting plot point that we'll, we'll come back to to bite later. But I, I noticed something that I thought was quite amusing. Um, so at the point that Zorin's horse wins, there's people jumping around and celebrating, and uh, Zorin starts to shake hands of a few people nearby. And what is clearly an extra sticks out his hand, and Zorin just ignores him. But the, the extra just carries on cheering anyway like it never happened. And uh, I didn't know if that was a blooper or whether that was just like an innocent mistake, but it, it made me chuckle that it was just so blatant that he ignored this particular person for no apparent reason. So Andy, yeah, that's a good pickup where you did there because that when I read your comment there, because I didn't notice this where the extra sticks out his hand, but it reminded me of in Bond with the Spiral of Me where Bond's friend Luigi sticks out his hand to shake, um, sticks out his hand to shake. Um, oh, what's the... Like same now, the other bloke. What's oh my god, my memory. My my short term memory's really bad. What's his name? I'm gonna have to open up. You know the bloke that they think's a goodie but is actually the baddie? Uh yes. One moment. <sighs> and it's not the spy love me, it's for your for your eyes only. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so it's um, uh, Colum it's Columbo, yeah. No, no, it's not Columbo. The other one. Oh, uh, Christatos. Yeah, that's Christatos, it. Christatos, he's the villain. Yeah. But it's probably for your eyes only. <laughs> I bet when some people, if if anyone listens that's like really into Bond, I bet they're just fucking like rolling their eyes. Some of the stuff we say. <laughs> Experts, um, we are not. That's for sure. <laughs> Yeah, Andy, that's a good observation there. I didn't pick up where he, the extra sticks out, sticks out his hand, and that reminded me of. <laughs> 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 
<laughs> for your eyes only. Uh, if we ever do a blooper reel, <laughs> start with this episode. <laughs> but it reminded me of For Your Eyes Only, where Luigi puts his hand out to Christatus and Christatus just ignores him. So that was that reminded me there when you kind of mentioned that. Just thinking about um, a few episodes. So we're now in Paris and Bond meets the local detective Aubergine at the Eiffel Tower to discuss Zorin and the possibility that Zorin horses are cheating because at the moment obviously this is just a theory. So Aubergine explains to Bond that the French police has no information on Zorin prior to his arrival from East Germany. So I think you kind of started getting um, some little red lights, red flags are kind of flashing then I think you know East Germany Russia um but nothing showed up in the horse drug test so Bond and Aubergine are treated to this is the butterfly performance that I mentioned obviously in terms of my memorable scene my favorite scene and when this first happened with the I didn't remember it was exactly butterflies Andy but I remember that there was a performance of some sorts that involved a performer on stage, but there was not not an interaction with the audience, but there was something happening in the audience or around the audience. So I remember that. And Aubergine is then assassinated with a, a poisonous butterfly, and Bond makes a quip to another guest to say, a fly in his soup, which was very cold, I thought, a bit typical Bond with his one-liner. Takes every opportunity to make a joke out of things. Uh, following that, uh, Bond bon realises it's Mayday. They've done it and he chases her up the Eiffel Tower and she jumps off with a parachute, uh, which was one of the aforementioned bloopers. So it was planned that two stuntmen would both parachute off the Eiffel Tower so that two takes could be filmed. The two stuntmen in question, um, BJ Worth and Don Caldvet. Caldvet. BJ and Don. Um, but when Worth did his jump first, they figured there was sufficient footage. So Calvert was told he wouldn't be needed to perform his, his own jump. So obviously Calvert's not happy about this. So he parachutes off the tower without authorization from the city of Paris anyway. Um, and unsurprisingly was sacked by the production team because he's jeopardised the filming um, in the city. So... He got his marching orders for, for being a bit of a daredevil. And uh, we we see that when Bond jumps on the lift as it's descending the Eiffel Tower following this scene, that it's obviously a stuntman and not Roger Moore, which is a comment we've made a few times about a few films. I think it's less noticeable in the Moore films compared to Connery's. I would agree with that, yeah. I think with particularly with the with the, with the appearance of the stuntman's face, uh, in in a number of Connery films, we picked up on that, didn't we? Yes, we did. We so this is you know we're we're still having the the chase sequence here, and Bond throws a cabbie out of the taxi when Bond is chasing Mayday. Now this bit made me laugh, Andy, and I don't know what your thoughts are on this. So obviously, in Octopussy, we see Bond and the the telephone booth where. Bond is trying to get onto the telephone to, men, you know, to phone the army up to say that there's a nuclear bomb heading to the U.S. Army base in Octopussy. 
So Bond doesn't seem to have an issue manhandling a male cabbie to chase Mayday, but he won't interrupt a woman in a telephone booth when a nuclear bomb is about to go off. So hmm, I don't know if you had any thoughts there. When that happened, it did make me chuckle. Is that Bond being too much of a gentleman, or is he is he being outright sexist? Yes, I was going to say, or because it involves chasing a woman. He will do anything, but I don't think at that point he knows it's a woman, does he? I'm not sure that he does, but but maybe chasing a person is more important to him than stopping a nuclear bomb. Doesn't make sense. So Bond is chasing Mayday on a boat and he crashes through the ceiling and interrupts a wedding. So this is the second time from memory that Moore's Bond has interrupted a wedding and live and let die be in the other, and that's obviously the the boat chases in it where their boat comes over that patch of land and they're having a little wedding. I, I noted one thing about this particular scene and that's when he crashes through the ceiling, he lands on the wedding cake, like, which is kind of like a, a big three-tier wedding cake. Uh, listeners out there, I hope you know what a wedding cake looks like because I obviously can't demonstrate to you, but it's a tiered wedding cake and it's obviously got icing and makes a right old mess. But when he gets up, his suit is completely immaculate, not a drop of cake on him. I, I didn't notice that as well, Andy, to be honest. And that was a, a good pickup there. But so this kind of so this kind of ends this little scene here. So Mayday successfully escapes with Zorin. And that's when you first see Zorin as well in terms of him being an actual baddie. Because obviously when he's at the Ascot, you don't know if he's actually bad yet, do you? Because on screen he's not done anything wrong. Whereas here, you see Mayday obviously assassinate someone and she's escaping with Zorin. So for me, that is when you first know that Zorin is an actual baddie. But they just do this really fake, over-the-top laugh between themselves. Yeah, it's it's quite evil. But I use the word evil in inverted commas because, because of the uh, theatrical nature of it. Uh, later on, Bond arrives at Zorin's mansion and stables, and he poses as James St. John Smythe. Um, and he introduces himself as he would normally as Bond. He introduces himself as St. John Smythe, James St. John Smythe. Um, he likes to boss Tibbet around, so Tibbet's with him, kind of posing as his chauffeur. And he makes him carry his all his cases to the room. And there's a funny bit where... Uh, Bond's just walking around the room and, and Tibbet's clearly in uh, quite a bit of distress. He's got five or six cases under his arms. And uh, Bond says to Tibbet, here, let me help you, and just takes an umbrella away from him. And he's still got all the cases under him. I thought it was, that was quite a, a nice a nice thing to do. Um, and then a helicopter arrives with an attractive blonde, who we later find out is Stacy Sutton. And Bond is admiring Stacy, and Tibbet says something about focusing on the mission. And his quote, here was uh, Sir Godfrey on a mission. I'm expected to sacrifice myself. Yeah, and this reminded me of the auction scene, you know, in Octopussy, where they go to Sotheby's, and it really just demonstrates that Bond has a reputation for the women within MI6. Yeah, that is that is interesting, and clearly no one's done anything about it up to this point. And if if it's that widely known. I'm just going off on a bit of a tangent here, but that would mean that Moneypenny knows, and she's okay with it. Yeah, yeah. She she never gets her experience, though, does she? 
the true love of Bond. Certainly not on camera, that's for sure. So we see then Bond is he's just pulling out all the moves to try to seduce Stacey. He's really he's really going for it. It's quite over the top as well in some bits. But then we see Bond and Tibbet investigate the hidden lab and Andy obviously he said he remembered this um earlier on in the pod as well. So he we see Bond as well use a, a stethoscope to crack the combination on the fridge. So it's it's unfortunate that he didn't have any of his safe cracking devices that he's had in previous Bond films, because he's obviously had a few um, as well. And this is when Bond kind of determines how Zoran's horses are winning. So he's figured out now that that is how, you know, Zoran's horses are being um, enhanced. And when they they kind of escaping through the lab, so they, get, they, they move to another room. And Bond also then comes across a large supply of microchips. So I think he's starting to put um, the pieces together now. But we see these two guards come down the lift and then we see some fighting between Bond and Tibbet and these two guards. But there were just some over-the-top, really obvious fake noises with the fight scene here as well, which... To be honest, Andy, that I wouldn't say it's, it was out of place. It was just obvious, but it kind of brought back memories of the the earlier Bond films, you know, with some of the the special effects, sound effects that they've had in those films. Yeah, particularly the Connery era, where some of the some of the the obvious sound effects were were quite egregious, and you just again it it kind of snaps you out of the moment, doesn't it, when the 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 picture doesn't match the sound. Yeah, definitely. And then what we see next is... So the, the, camera, the, the camera cuts to Zorin and Mayday sparring. And the wife made a comment here to say, does Mayday need to be wearing that thong-type outfit? So she's wearing... I don't know what you call it. But she's wearing a, something that really rides up on her buttocks while sparring. Yeah, some sort of like leotard or singlet, isn't it? And... Um... It's an interesting point raised there, actually, because we've talked throughout this series about the various Bond girls and their state of undress and some of the accidental slips that they've left in the films. But I think this is one of the first times I recall where it's it's a blatant uh, a blatant use of a scantily clad female, and I, and I use I use the word scantily clad loosely there because. We see that in every film to an extent, but I think this is the first time it goes to this extent on purpose. But maybe that's just a, a sign of the changing times. Um, maybe, yeah, the the 80s, I don't know. 80s are in full force here. So Bond gets back to the mansion while the alarms are going off, the place is being locked down, and he discovers that people are in his room, so he gets in Mayday's bed, and Bond and Mayday have sex. So, Andy, I've got a question here that I, I kind of thought of while watching it. Do you think Bond knew this was Mayday's room? Or do you think that when Bond was going back to his room and he knew someone was in his room, he basically just looked for the first empty room that he could find and then if someone comes in, he can play up, you know, oh, I'm in your bed. Because I was thinking, oh, I don't, well, what's your thoughts if I tell you what mine are? I... I think he knew 
because there's a scene earlier on where he's arriving and they, I think they kind of pass each other in the hall, don't they? And I think he sees her go into that room. But whether he meant to go in there when he came back, I'm not sure, or whether it was just coincidence that that was the easiest place for him to go. I don't know. Uh, one thing I will say about this particular encounter is that Mayday is in full control. This is This is not Bond initiating his usual bond moves this is all mayday which is makes for a quite an interesting dynamic i think she's definitely the dominant one in that particular couple i agree andy and i was because i didn't remember that bit about the them you know pass um, possibly passing each other in the hallway so i think you know if that if that did happen then yeah i think that's fair enough but i was just thinking if he didn't know and it could be anyone's room could you imagine he was in bed and Dr. Mortner arrived? <laughs> I wonder what Bond's um, reaction would be there. Would he just roll with it or would he be, oh, sorry, I thought you were someone else? Well, he, he said earlier that when he's on a mission, he has to sacrifice himself. <laughs> so I think this is one of those instances where he takes one for the team. And we never know, does Dr. Mortner enhance his um, performance as well? You never know. Some strange things have been going on in that lab, that's for sure. But let's let's move away from the lab. And we see Zorin and Bond are talking, and Zorin is using the computer to find out who is this Sinjin Smythe character sat in front of him. And that's when he realises, or the computer tells him rather, that Bond is a secret agent and he's got a licence to kill. And he's extremely dangerous. Very dangerous, but and they've got another question. Apologies, and they've got another question. So, Bond is known by the KGB, and it's later revealed that Zorin works or used to work for the KGB. How come Zorin doesn't know Bond? Because, as we established before, when Bond has died and he's appearing on front page of the news, and we know diamond smugglers even know who Bond is. Everyone knows who Bond is. How, how does Zorin not recognise Bond? It baffles me because I, I made I made a, what I thought was a funny note that Bond is a not so secret agent. Is what really was because he's like you said he's he's known to the KGB. He's he's all over the newspapers. He's known to crime lords throughout the world. What has Zorin been doing all this time to not realise who Bond is? So. Tidbit is killed then by Mayday when he's getting the car wash. And this is obviously something, Andy, that you mentioned earlier as one of your favourite scenes. Um, but the Rolls Royce driven by Godfrey Tidbit actually belonged to Broccoli. So I thought that was a, a nice little fact that we found. But I remember watching this as a youngster and feeling sad about Bond's friend die, dying because as a kid, I don't know when I watched this film for the first time and you know when films on TV they're obviously not in order but I remember being a kid watching this and feeling quite sad because from memory Bond doesn't really lose many friends when I that's what I remembered as a as a child that you know the good guys don't die in in the Bond films but obviously you know as an adult we've seen innocent people die before so yeah just something I wanted to point out I wonder as well how much of your upset was because of how the scene was shot. Because for me, this kind of reminded me of a horror film. Uh, so you can see the like the blur of the car wash and Godfrey's in the front seat and the Mayday kind of slowly appears from behind him. 
and I, I I thought it was really well shot. Obviously, it, it wasn't horrific in terms of gore or or scary in any way, but just the just the the surprise element was 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 really well done. I thought, but I have a question here at this point, and that is why didn't he check the car when he was leaving the grounds? So, uh, just to refresh memories for people who not seen it for a while there's a there's a scene just before this where bond uh sorry where tibbet is going out and he gets out of the car to open the gate and then gets back in the car and mayday is one one minute she's there next minute she's disappeared and he doesn't think to check the car he just gets in and drives off and that's really surprising to me because where else could she have gone there's a, there's nothing else around so surely you would check well has she just got into my car yeah yeah uh... I agree, Andy. It's, I, you know, going back to your earlier point, it it did feel like a a horror film. I was, I'm, I was when you were saying that, I was trying to think of what films we've seen. You know, where someone then kind of creeps up in the back seat to kill, um, like another character in the front, and I couldn't quite remember a film, but obviously it's being replicated since and i don't know if you had that kind of scene beforehand but it did bring back you know it's been covered in other films hasn't it so yeah absolutely and and this scene as well feeds into what was my favorite scene of the film so bond and zorin and a bunch of his henchmen are on racing horses on the training course and as they're racing zorin's in front and he goes over the fences and then there's someone next to each fence kind of pressing a button or pulling a lever or something to just make the fence either a little bit higher or a little bit harder to jump so it's more difficult for Bond. So it's obviously just fooling around with him. And then the henchmen start attacking Bond as well. And it's at this point where Bond needs to escape. So he jumps the barrier and tries to escape through the forest. He ends up getting caught, um, but as he's right, he notices Tibbet's car, so he thinks... I head towards that because it's safety, but then he realises that Mayday is driving it and Tibbet's been killed. And at this point, uh, the car is pushed into the lake. Bond's unconscious, he's been hit over the head. Uh, So they're in the backseat with Tibbet and Mayday shows her strength by pushing the car into the lake with Bond unconscious. And he wakes just in the nick of time and gets out of the car. He's underwater and you see this kind of scene... Where through where the camera's underwater looking out and Zorin and Mayday are at the side of the lake watching the, the car drown. I guess just to make sure that no one emerges. And Bond realizes this that so he can't go to the surface, so he, he uses the air from the car tires to, to keep himself alive. And I thought that was a really clever use of the the tires in that situation. Very resourceful. Yeah, I agree. But you you know, when you thought it was clever, I was thinking I wonder if that's possible. And then I was half thinking about going onto the driveway and seeing if it would work with my car tire when I just thought of living a neighbour coming out and seeing me do that. Because I was thinking, how how practical is that? Because you know when I've had so many flat tyres and punctures in my cars, and you've obviously got that little pin, don't you, that you have to um, press down for the, the, you know, the air to release. I was thinking, like, how is it, is it possible? And Andy, um, that that made me um, do a bit of research on this particular point. So, 
the, the I don't know if you ever watched this. I think I've only watched it a few times. You remember the TV program? So I don't know. It must be on in America because I think they're American. Mythbusters. Yep, I know the show. Yep. So they actually did this in 2003 to see whether it could actually be done. So they reproduced the the try to breathe air by um, being underwater, and they proved it was impossible to do. So it wasn't actually possible to actually try that. So I don't know if you dispute that and you want to go and find a car that we can push into the local river and try to replicate that in, you know, our scenario, situation, controlled environment. I don't know. Any, What's any, your... any listeners out there want to attempt to push your own <coughs> car into, into a lake, jump in. And if you survive the encounter, report back to us and let, you, let us know how it, how it went. And if if not, um, well, I guess you won't be tuning in next week. And don't sue us if you do survive but get maimed or something. Yeah, our lawyers have said we are not to encourage people jumping into lakes to breathe air from their own car tyres for some reason or other. Spoil sports. Uh, thank you, Andy, for that disclaimer. Um, moving on, General Gogol returns. So, Gogol, he, he's not happy. So, he's not happy with Zorin for killing Bond and also bringing attention to himself for horse racing. So, as we know in previous films, Gogol is very much discreet, kind of working from the shadows and, where possible, trying to not highlight, because obviously in Octopussy... Um, he was being a lot more diplomatic, wasn't he, in terms of um, the, the the plans of the other general. So this is where we find out that Zorin worked for the KGB. And I think it is worked, isn't it, Andy? Because I'm sure he said, Google makes some kind of comment, doesn't he, about no one leaves KGB or, every, you know, it, you don't leave the KGB or something like that. He makes some kind of flippant comment, doesn't he, there. I didn't write it down, but that just kind of, it was at the very least implied that he was part of the KGB, worked for, part of, trained by. There's definitely that connection. Yeah. And we see Dalf Lundgren has a brief appearance here as one of General Gogol's KGB agents. So Lundgren, who was dating Grace Jones at the time, was visiting her on set when one day an extra went missing. So director John Glenn asked him if he wanted to attempt the role. So this is actually Dalf's first film. So his first film debut, Andy. Not bad, is it, being a a minor part in a, a Bond film? I mean, talk about starting at the top. That's that's the way to do it. And, of course, when, when we make our film debut in a few years' time, it will probably be in, in a future Bond film through, due to the success of this podcast. You heard it, you heard it here first. Maybe. Definitely. And what did you say earlier about um, setting your targets or something? What was that little um, tidbit of advice? What was you, it? You've got to shoot your shot. That's it. Shoot your shot. What, what's the what's the the sports analogy? You miss a hundred percent of the shots you don't take, which brings reminds me. Sorry, I'm I'm just rambling now, but it reminds me of Anchorman, where he's um, he gets the Sex Panther. After shave out of the cupboard and it says sixty uh, percent of the time it works every time. <laughs> Moving on, so we we also see 
Mayday picking up one of Gogol's KGB henchmen and she just picks him up. And she, she obviously she's so formidable um, as well because obviously we saw the sparring at the, you know, a, a few minutes ago with Zorin and she's just so intimidating as well. Even the way she looks, she's very, I don't want to say she, she's, you know, she, she's a woman, yes, but she's very physically imposing and a, a scary character, isn't she? Very, very powerful, yeah. Physically powerful. We we move now from Paris and we go to San Francisco. So in Zorin's blimp, he unveils his plan to destroy Silicon Valley in Operation main strike in order to gain control of the microchip market so this is the bit andy that i then kind of made me think of goldfinger and his plan with the gold do you remember in goldfinger when Ulrich goldfinger was doing his little you know he got his little model out and he's telling the mob bosses about what he's gonna do and everything and this just brought back memories of that scene in goldfinger where zomin's doing the same in his blimp with his little um model that's slowly being raised up from the 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 opening desk yeah a lot of similarities there and you know it's almost like a sales pitch isn't it by uh by goldfinger and, and in this case by zorin where he's going over the plan this is this is what it is and this is what it can mean for you so if you join me you can be rich beyond your wildest dreams that kind of uh, that kind of scenario and uh, I, I guess it just adds to the the point we've made earlier that zorin is a very much a megalomaniac that's what he's all about and later on it's stated he's a psychopath as well and part of this scene there is one of the businessmen or henchmen or whatever you want to call him uh, he's not interested he doesn't like the sound of this plan so uh, he's politely asked to, to leave because he because of confidentiality so he leaves of his own accord uh, but then he's thrown from the blimp and I'm I'm thinking aloud now because I can't remember exactly what happened. But does does the staircase kind of turn into a slide or something? And he kind of just yeah yeah, yeah it does yeah yeah. So it, it just drops him out of the blimp, and uh, uh, you go back to the the boardroom, and Zorin said, "Does anyone else want to drop out?" That was a a nice little line. He's getting in a, a bond quip, isn't he? he? He's trying to out bond bond. That's what he's doing here. That's a, a nice line. I enjoyed that. Um, meanwhile, Bond meets up with Chuck Lee from the CIA. Uh, little tidbit on on Chuck Lee, played by the actor David Yip, who's featured in a number of films and TV shows. Uh, so I'm just going to list a few here and uh, see if you can spot the odd one out. So there's Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. There's Brookside. There's Fortitude. And Chucklevision. Must have been a career highlight, I'm sure. This is where, you know, one of the times I got my phone out and it was, you know, when I said, oh, I remember him from something. I didn't watch Brookside. I, I've, I've seen Temple of Doom and that's the film that I remember him from. But also Fortitude, I watched that. And obviously as a kid, I watched Tuckle Vision. And I don't know um, how non-UK based listeners will know Tuckle Vision. I don't know if it's ever been... Um, transmitted to overseas countries i don't know but you're missing I, out yeah, going i on hope YouTube. so a real a real highlight of children's television back in the 
early to mid nineties, I think it must have been. Uh, but shall shall we carry on uh, with the podcast? Is it to me or to you? <laughs> Anyone that doesn't know Chucklevision, that would have just gone straight over your head. But that is brilliant, Andy. So. Lee informs Bond that Zarin is a psychopath, as Andy just mentioned, and that is is as a result of a failed steroid experiment by Dr. Karl Maltner that you find out is a ex-Nazi turned Soviet scientist. So Bond goes to one of Zarin's oil rigs to investigate further, and Bond is nearly killed in one of the intake pipes. And I was quite gripped by this bit, Andy, actually, because... You know he's not going to die, but there was definitely an element of danger. You know, sometimes where a film might put you the main character in a situation, but you're not really, you know, they're going to survive. Whereas this, even I knew it was going to survive. I did feel that there was definitely um, panic on Bond's part there, and he was near death. Yeah, I agree. There was a definite sense of urgency. On, on Bond's behalf here. Nice scene. And then we see, Bond observes that there are two other people there as well. And we find that... So we find out that even Ava was sent there to sabotage Zorin's rig. But even Ava's partner is captured and killed by Zorin, um, Zorin's henchman. And that was very cold-blooded, wasn't it? Because they he disarms the the explosive device, doesn't he? So, um even Nova's partner, and then they just throw him into the intake pipe that Bond just, man, you know, managed to escape, and then he just obviously gets cut to shreds. So, very cold. So, the original script had Barbara back re- reprising her role as Major Anya Amazova from the 1977 The Spy Loved Me. However, back declined the role. And Andy, when I think of that... I don't know, obviously, I don't know her, and I didn't find anything in the research to say why she didn't come back. But if it was me, I think I would have declined as well because she has such a minor part in this movie compared to the the part that she had in The Spiral Loved Me, who, you know, to be honest, was Bond's equal, whereas here, Bond gets the one-up on her, doesn't he? Yeah, I agree. I think this is... This is a step down from from the from the spy love me in terms of the the role of, of Amasova and the the part in the film as well. So I'm I'm in complete agreement with you. But we do know that Bond and Evenova knew each other from a previous mission, and they end up sleeping together. And Evenova leaves while Bond is in the shower, and she takes the tape recording of Zorin, sprints out of the room, goes to the car with the Gogol. So they stick the the tape in to listen to in the car and that's when they find out that Bond has switched the tapes and they, they look at each other with, with quite a funny expression that they've they've been they've been bamboozled, I guess for, for lack of a better term. <laughs> uh we cut back to Bond. He's listening to the tape and he's taking notes, which you know, sounds like a sensible thing to do. He's trying to disseminate information. But he has to rewind because he didn't I guess he didn't catch everything. He just wants to make sure that he's got all the information written down correctly. But then you see his notepad, and he's wrote in quite big letters three things. Silicon Valley, three days, main strike. And my question here is, 
can he seriously not remember three things to the point where he has to write them down? Yeah, this is a a, a top secret agent, skilled in in many many fields, knowledgeable about everything he talks about, but he can't remember three items. Like imagine if you had to go to the shops and you needed milk, bread, and a paper, and you couldn't remember that, so you had to write it down that you needed milk, bread, and a paper. Just seems very out of place for for someone seemingly so intelligent. I was going to use that blimmin' shopping um, example then as well. Oh, but, I've stolen your material. <laughs> but it did make me think because you know I'm you know I'm in my early forties now, Andy, and my memory's going, so I'm constantly writing things down. And we know Bond now is in his fifties, so is that you know a sign of the age? Is age kind of playing up on him? But then you think every time M or Q does a debriefing. Bond knows about the subject. So you you just imagine his brain is like a sponge just absorbing all that information in. But like you said, these three things <laughs> that you picked up on. Well, how did that uh, place? I mean, he knows about EMP technology. He knows about various different alcohol. He knows about butterflies. He knows about golf. He, know, what a, you know, <laughs> he knows about so many different things, but he can't remember three things that he's just listened to on a I'll take recording. I struggle to remember what we talked about last week, though, Andy, to be honest. You should, you should see around my screen all the yellow post-it notes I've got to try to remember what we talked about last week. But moving on. So Bong continues in his investigation and goes to meet W.G. Howe in the San Francisco Oil and Mines Division. So Bong uses an alias and introduces, introduces himself as Stock, James Stock. So... It's interesting here because Bond has used two aliases in this movie and both times he has kept his real first name but also the, the introduction, you know, where he goes surname, first name, surname. So, but you know that, that first bit about keeping his first name? I remember watching, I think it was a documentary. It was something about spies or people that go undercover and they say to try to use your real first name just in case you're in a pub or something and someone you know goes, Andy, but you're using an alias of James. So it kind of gets around those little things. So I think that makes sense. But that's only because I watched that documentary about spies or I listened to a podcast. I can't remember where I listened to it or watched it. But I, I thought it was interesting that he keeps that surname, first name, surname. That's that's really quite clever. I'd, I'd not thought about that before. I guess the alternative is he changes his first name and someone shouts, you know, if, if he's if he's Timmy Stock, and someone shouts James, he has to either if he responds to it, then people say, "Hang on a minute, your name's not James," or if he doesn't respond, he then has to explain to said person that, "Sorry, you must have been mistaken with someone else," and that raises suspicion. So no, I like that. It's a it's a nice little factoid for any wannabe spies out there. Yeah, definitely, indeed. So we see Bond breaks into Stacy Sutton's house and he gets outwitted by her though. So he, he creeps through, um, I think it's through a window and he's, you know, he's going through the house and then he, he goes to enter the bathroom but then we see her actually hiding in a closet behind him with a gun so he gets outwitted. But then a few moments later, Zoe's men then attack the house and Bond and Sutton work together to protect her. And then, so Bond cooks Sutton what looks like a nice quiche. 
But I'm sure there's something earlier where Stacy said she's not a good cook and she's going to order in. Um, and it just seems quite convenient that but she has all the ingredients needed for Bond to cook this quiche. Um, she ends up falling asleep while Bond fixes the telephone lines. But I've got a question at this point. And we've, so we find out after, you know, they've, she's kind of been protected by him and then he's staying for tea and he's cooked for her. Why did she change outfits to stay indoors? And she look, you know, she's got herself quite dolled up, but for nothing. Just seems a lot of effort to go to, to stay in for tea. I, I agree, Andy, because I, I noticed that. So she's wearing, I can't remember what outfit she's wearing before, but then when Bond is dishing up the keys, she's wearing a little black number, isn't she? And I remember clocking that thinking, well, why has she got changed? You know, it, and like you said, especially going out. Um, and then, yeah, getting herself all dressed up. But she's, she's probably just wanting to impress um, Bond. Show a bit of effort. I don't know why else you would. I don't get changed when I go and eat my dinner. I don't go, wife, I'm going to change into my dining clothes and then go upstairs and get changed. You should definitely do that in future. <laughs> Come down with full tuxedo. <laughs> I sometimes get changed into my pajamas early on, but never into anything that makes me look any better. Chuck Lee arrives at the house, and he's to, he's also killed in his car by Mayday. So she's got a, a bit of a pattern. Um, Bond and Stacey don't realise this, of course. Uh, they go to the oil and mines building later on, and Bond is rocking a leather jacket, and it's very different from what we normally see Roger Moore wearing as Bond so it's a bit of an updated look for him it really stood out Andy for me because we've pointed out on the you know each episode that Moore's Bond is very slick and he always looks well dressed and very um, sophisticated but that just looked really weird for me I don't know it's just the whole thing of the 80s and trying to be modern but the whole leather jacket fit, he just stuck out. It really, that's the, when I first saw him in it, that is what I just noticed straight away that he was wearing a leather jacket. I wrote this down, but I can't remember if it's specifically this or whether there was another similar outfit he was wearing at a different point in the film, but I thought it, it kind of reminded me of Alan Partridge. Um, you know, particularly when Alan Partridge goes for a drive. And he's, you know, if he had the driving gloves, that would be, that would have completed the look. But it just brought to mind Alan Partridge for some reason. But anyway, at uh, the oil and mines building, Zorin kills Hal. Um, it's very very elaborate setup, and he explains how he's going to kill him, and then he kills him. The the thing I noted here was that the blood was much better than what we've seen in the past. So there was no no use of that bright red fake blood that we've seen pre- previously. Um, it was much. It looked much more realistic, even to the point where the shirt is ripped at the point where the bullet went into his chest. So I thought that was that was a nice improvement from what we've seen previously. Yeah, no, I agree. They really, um, they really stepped up the game there, haven't they, with the artificial blood? So even though the the people in the copyright department might have dropped the ball there, they've definitely really really made up for it in the. Um, Special effects? I don't know what the department is that does... Um, I don't know. Fate Blood team have done really well there. Um, yeah, special effects. Special effects. Special effects. 
so I'm just going to talk a, a, a few points here about this fire engine um, chase, but also the bit before. So Bond saves Stacy from the fire and carries her down the ladder, and the tension you can just you can just feel it being built up, and that that you know Bond is climbing down the ladder with her, and I think he's, he's got her over her shoulder doing the fireman's lift, but. You can just feel that tension in the crowd, you know, because the camera keeps pa- um, focusing on the um, the crowd, you know, the people gathered at the bottom, and then it goes up to Bond. So I really noticed that. But then Bond then obviously gets down, and he, he stood next to the fire truck with Stacey Sutton, and he's challenged by the police, and then they attempt to arrest him. And then Bond ends up, ends up stealing the fire truck and flees the scene. Now... I remembered this, and obviously I mentioned this at the beginning, um, at the top of the podcast. I remember this, and I, I don't know if I remember it, just because I've seen this film a lot as a kid. But I just don't like this scene at all. Um, and I just think it's really silly with the whole fire engine, and the bit with the ladder as well. And the the wife was watching this, obviously, with me, and she said this reminded her of the scene in Con Air, and I haven't, I haven't seen Con Air for ages, but I did YouTube it, and there is a bit there with the fire truck. Originally, she said um, lethal weapon, so I was Googling lethal blooming weapon, trying to find a bit with a fire engine, and then she said no. She got Nicolas Cage and Mel Gibson mixed up. So um, it was in, 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 it was in Con Air. And then I did like the ending bit where the chase ends with the bridge going up, and I thought that was funny with the police cars sliding down and they're like the, the sliding down into each other. And then the, the police officer, I don't know if he's a captain or not, he's in charge and he's, he's just moaning about the damage of the other officer's cars, you know, when he pulls up. And then his car gets crushed. And I, th- I think it's part of the bridge, isn't it? Kind of like the, the counterweight or whatever the, the correct terminology is, kind of falls onto it. Well, not falls onto it, but it kind of crushes his car. So that bit made me laugh. Yeah, that was... Uh... I think that was done for comedic effect, but yeah, it was a nice, a nice little um, play on words there, or you know, whatever, whatever the the phrase is. It's pretty good. Did you um, like that scene? I liked the scene. It, did, I definitely, you know, as soon as I saw it in the notes, Con Air brought me straight back to that line, and it's uh, it's interesting you say that your wife gets Nicolas Cage and Mel Gibson confused in the instance because I I remember and I tease my wife about this all the time, but she. She used to get Nicolas Cage and Michael Caine confused. <laughs> so uh, something about Nicolas Cage is, you know, clearly makes people think of other people. Uh, Michael Caine's very different, though, isn't it? Very, yes, very different. Yeah, and I, I will be sure to remind her many, many times more of her, <laughs> of her silliness. We we see again something that we've seen in in previous films where the camera speeds up an effect to show like a, during a fight scene. So Bond's wearing a fireman. So he punches a guy at the mine. And then we see this, this sped up effect of the camera to show the punch giving full force. Um, it's an effect they've used to var- with varying success uh, in previous films. Later on in the mine, we see that everyone is wearing a hard hat except for Mayday, Jenny Flex and Pan Ho, which is uh, quite interesting. I wonder whether that's just because of aesthetic reasons or they just don't give a damn about health and safety who knows moving on we we see Zorin had packed the the mines with lots of explosive and 
Andy, <laughs> when this flashed up, because the camera then kind of, um, I can't remember if it zooms in or zooms out, and there's lots of explosive. And when I say lots, I mean lots, because when <laughs> it happened, me and the missus like looked at each other and said, oh, he's not, he's not leaving nothing to chance there. He just went really overboard. And I know he's trying to trigger a, and kind of an earthquake, isn't he? You know, with the, um, what, what do you call them? The, the lines? What do you at, the, at the fault, yeah. Yeah. So I know he's doing that, but he just seemed to be really over the top with the explosives. But another thing here is Bond and Stacy are discovered and they're being chased through the mines. And we see Mayday, Jenny Flax and Pan Ho being chased, um, chasing them. And the wife can be quick-witted. Um, and she said, oh, it's like the villain version of Charlie's Angels there, which I thought was quite funny. Also, we see Zoran detonate one of the bombs. And then this this is where I, I made a note here, Andy, because he's just killing <laughs> lots and lots of his people. And he's taking pleasure in it. He's just really... It's like a machine. He has a machine gun, and this is where you, you can really tell he's a psychopath. I know it's obviously mentioned earlier um, by the, you know, by Chuck to say, you know, he's, he's a psychopath, but he's just mowing down loads of his men, and he's like, why? I made a similar note. Not only is he enjoying himself, but he's also wasting time you know he's against the clock here and he decides I'm just going to waste a little bit more time and shoot as many people as I can it's a, it's a very a very dark side to him has to be said um, but it really shows off his, his psychopathic tendencies um, we, we go to a funny scene where the lake is empty and there's a fisherman shocked and he's kind of confused because his boat's sat there on an empty lake which I thought was, was quite a nice little visual and there's there's a bit where Bond and Mayday are together and there's electric cables that are sparking. And a little bit that you, I think you found this in the research. Grace Jones screams when the sparks flying around her are genuine. They were created to mimic the effect of electrical cables in and near the water, but Grace wasn't told about them. So she was genuinely reacting with those screams. And um, I don't blame her. Very dangerous. You do read that, don't you? And you see that in um, bonus features or you know documentaries of various films where something happens in a film, but they don't actually tell the cast that it's going to happen, or they they downplay it. So you know, this you might there might be a little explosion, but then it's obviously a massive one, so they kind of get a genuine reaction. Yeah, I think it's it's quite effective in this case, uh, but yeah, it's 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 a tried and trusted tried and tested technique of the movie industry isn't it it is so this is when mayday now realizes that zorin has betrayed her and she sacrifices herself there to get the bomb out of the mine now i didn't write this down andy but it's something me and the missus discussed when it happened did she really need to sacrifice herself she she's got the bomb out she could have easily because bond dismounts the um the what do you call it trolley you know the thing that had yeah. the bomb in so bond dismounts as it's going out of the mine into you know the open air but she's still on there and i get they've probably just um killed her off just so then she's kind of 
written out of it and she doesn't appear in the the other scenes which i suppose you could say she gets arrested or something but i think you know that forces her out of the the following scenes on the the golden gate yeah it it does seem a little bit unnecessary for her to to sacrifice herself at this point yeah and then we we see a bit here and so Mayday gets blown up. Stacy's on top of the hill and she, and she sees the explosion and she does that. James, James, you know. And me and her wife both looked at each other here because it's like, well, she's she kind of looked after herself. I know Bond helped her, but you know when her house was being attacked by Zorin's men. So she's not um, she's not a helpless person. But that whole thing, how she does that little... You know, James, James. It just shows how vulnerable she is. But that's the same with a lot of the Bond girls. That that kind of damsel in distress type thing. Yeah. Um. And I made a note here, Andy. With the the whole Golden Gate Bridge. Now, I hate heights. I do. I'm I'm scared of them. But I found that really tense and terrifying. <laughs> you know, the whole scene where they're on the Golden Gate and they're just like clinging on and everything. And so when I was like, you know, being really nervous and not liking that at all, the wife just said, oh, I'm really impressed Stacey's doing all this while wearing high heels. So she, she's picking out the, the practical bits of the um, female role in, in the Bond film. I think mean, your wife's setting feminism back about 30 years there. <laughs> but um, no, it's, a, it's a valid point for sure. It's not practical footwear for that kind of activity. We get to the, the end of the film now and we're at MI6 and Stacy's house. Bond is awarded with the Order of Lenin by Gogol, who claims that the Soviet economy needs Silicon Valley. And I think this is something we both know. So Gogol is a real suck-up here. He's, it reminds me, he's kind of like a lapdog. And he just goes with whichever side he's winning. He, he doesn't make decisions for himself. He just goes with the easy option. So he just tries to gain favour by whichever side he's on top. Um. Bond is then missing in action, and we see Moneypenny, quite upset, tearful at her desk, in what is her final scene as as Moneypenny, and uh, it seems quite sad that she goes out while she's upset, doesn't go out on a high. And, and finally, uh, Bond and Stacey are in, in the shower, and, and Q is using his spy robot that he had earlier. And I, I noted that he said, 007 alive. And immediately, that made me think of the film Short Circuit and Johnny Five Alive. So I wondered if this was some sort of like homage. But I researched and Short Circuit wasn't released until 1986, which is the year later. So I, I don't know how I put those two together, but clearly I'm mistaken. But Short Circuit, yeah, it's a, it's a brilliant film. Both the films are. And I agree with Yandy. It was a, it was a shame that she went out... Um, being tearful but then do you think she she was tearful because it is her last role so it's kind of just showing her being upset that you know this is Lois Maxwell's last role this is the 60 second review by James Bond superfan this week's reviews are provided by Toby and Stuart Toby you have 60 seconds start the clock Roger Moore's final outing as 007 sees him following up on a high-tech EMP impervious microchip he gathers on a pre-credit sequence in Siberia. Possibly the best sequence of the film. 
Christopher Walken plays villain Zorin, a caricature of a role that wastes his acting skills. Grace Jones, his bodyguard, her real-life brusque demeanour translating well to her Mayday performance. It gets messy as Bond and Zorin both carry on regardless, despite their knowledge of the other man. Our other Bond girl is Stacy, a woman fighting Zorin in the courts whose vulnerability is inconsistent. She seems to really only be there to move the story forward. The middle act is slow, with only a fire engine chase to break the monotony. Other action includes another ski chase early on, some Parisian driving stunts, horse riding action and climaxing with a fight in a blimp with the Golden Gate Bridges of backdrop. Moore is looking all of his 57 years and no amount of makeup and stunt doubles can make him totally credible. But physicality aside, he does an okay job with a mediocre script and an overly complex evil plan. An unexceptional 5 out of 10 for the film and 6 out of 10 for Moore. Stuart, you have 60 seconds. Start the clock. Just for you. As a view to a kill, Roger Moore's final dance into the fire. 007 faces off against the younger, tech-savvy villain who absolutely isn't based at all on Bill Gates. It's the old man Bond film we didn't even know we had. It's actually, though, only a 20-minute film. The other 70 minutes are pauses between Christopher Walken speaking. It has one of the best Bond villains, a henchwoman who will take care of you personally, an Avenger, not that type fanboys, and a Bond girl whose screaming James may actually be what's really behind the earthquakes. So, if you're happiest in the saddle, ever dated a creep that you thought loved you and then left you to die in an exploding mine, that's quite specific, I know, and really like soft-shell crabs in the London Financial Times, then why not add this butterfly to your collection, my good man? Not Roger Moore's finest, but still very enjoyable. Free Sinjin Smythes. A big thank you to Toby and Stuart for recording this week's 60 second review by a James Bond superfan on The Rating Room. So that's the ending in terms of um, going through the film. Not scene by scene, but you know, picking up some of the bits that me and Andy kind of thought was either funny or interesting. Now, we're going to some of our regular features and the first one that we, we like to do is the, the one-liners and the quotes. And Andy, I think we're treating our listeners here because skimming through these one-liners we've got quite a bit of dialogue here haven't we this is where we're gonna really set hollywood alight with our skills here so best impressions now jay you can do this so the the first one um, i'm going to pick up and this is between bond and jenny flex so james bond goes well my dear i take it you spend quite a lot of time in the saddle and jenny goes yes i love an early morning ride and James Bond goes, well, I'm an early riser myself. Typical Bond fare there. So this one is a scene between Bond, uh, the police captain in the US, and Stacy. And uh, the police captain says, you're under arrest. Stacy replies, wait a minute, this is James Stock of the London Financial Times. And Bond replies, well, actually, Captain, I'm with the British Secret Service. My name is Bond, James Bond. The captain says, is he? Stacy, are you? James Bond, yes. And uh, the captain ends this with, and I'm Dick Tracy, and you're still under arrest. That's one of my favourites out of this film. Even though it's just before the scene that I don't like at all, that that one did make me laugh because of the whole, you know, where she goes, are you, is he? Like that, it just made me chuckle, that did. So next one um, that I've picked out here for, well, the next one I've got is, Zorin and W.G. Howe. So Howe goes, what have they done? And Max Zorin goes, you discharged her. So she and her accomplice came here to kill you. 
Then they set fire to the office to conceal the crime, but they were trapped in the elevator and perished in the flames. Howard goes, but that means I would have to be. Zoe goes, dead. I like that one as well. This has got some, even though it's a film I, I didn't really like, the, the quotes are quite strong, I think, in this movie. There are, there are some some zingers and also some some real pointed ones. Like that, that's not a, an amusing line, but it is very powerful. I like that one. Um, and then a, a quick exchange between Zorin and Bond. Zorin says, you amuse me, Mr. Bond. Bond replies, it's not mutual. That's just like a conversation between me and my wife, that is. Anyway, moving on. So this is... So our next segment is book first movie. And Andy, I didn't know this until we did our research. So this is a very small feature this week because although the title is adapted from Ian Fleming's 1960s short story From a View to a Kill, the film is actually entirely an original screenplay. So we usually talk about the differences between the book and the movie. And, well, everything's different apart from the title, which even the title is different because they dropped from from it. So, Andy, you know, go on, I think. You know, that's... Yeah, let's, let's skip over that and move on. Now, do you want to hear one of my legendary Bond jokes? I do want to hear one of your legendary, and so does the, the audience, our listeners. Okay, brace yourselves for this one. What is James Bond's favourite pasta? What is James Bond's favourite pasta? Mini penne. <laughs> I like that, Andy, because it's topical. Mini penne. Mini penne. I like, I, I like I like to explain jokes sometimes for, for anyone. So what it is, that's a play on words for money penny. Because mini penny sounds like money penny. There you go. Educational as well as humorous. Let's move on. Are you ready? Let's start the quiz. Well, yeah, talking about educational, we, we've got the quiz now, Andy, and this could be educational because I am going to pose my weekly question to you. So, are you ready? I'm, I'm ready. Let's do this. So... Andy, I'm kind of thinking to myself, do I need to explain what this is every week? Or am I assuming all our listeners have been there from day one? And then I think, what about our new listeners? They will come into this blind and say, what's this quiz? And then they're expecting 30 questions that I'm going to pose to you about general affairs. So what do you think? Do you reckon I should recap what it is or just get straight in there and cut everything out? I'll recap it for you. It's like an odd one out, except there's two, so it's an odd two out. Very good. All about James Bond as well. Two statements are correct. Are you ready? I'm ready. So, the first statement. After Lois Maxwell, who plays Miss Moneypenny, obviously, was told that they would be retiring her role, Maxwell suggested that she could take over as M. However, Broccoli didn't believe that the audience would accept a woman in charge of Bond. The next one. The original storyline involved Zorin trying to change the path of a comet so it crashed into Silicon Valley. The next one. The facial recognition technology that Zorin uses to identify Bond was inspired by the CIA. 
The CIA had developed a prototype for the facial recognition software the year before the film was written. And then the last statement for this week is A View to a Kill was nominated for a Razzie Award in the Worst Movie category. Am I saying that right? Razzie? Razzie, yeah. Yep. Okay. So two are correct, two are incorrect. This is another tough one. I'm going to go straight to the Razzie. Just let's get this one out of the way. I can't believe that any Bond film would have been nominated for a Razzie, except maybe Moonraker. But yeah, we we don't need to reopen old wounds. I I also wonder about the comet path change storyline. Because that's quite interesting, that. And it is very much something that a megalomaniac would do. It's very elaborate, and it is it is very Bond-esque, but in an over-the-top way. So it's kind of plausible. This is a tricky one. I think, though, I'm going to go with the first statement about Lois Maxwell and Moneypenny taking over as M. I, I think that's a true statement that... Um, it wouldn't be believed. And I also think the facial recognition software is a true statement. And it was inspired by the CIA. So I'm going to say true, false, true, false. You have got two right and two wrong. Would you like to have another attempt? So is it the comet? Is it? Is it the comet is the true statement? So it's true, true, false, false. That is correct. So Lois Maxwell did suggest that Money Penny takes over M, which when I told the wife about that, she said, Yes, but she's a secretary. How could she do that? But then I said, Remember, in an earlier film, you actually see that she's um, part of the Royal Navy, so she does have a rank. So you could plausibly say she is promoted i don't know if it says what rank she is i can't remember mm, if they say no, that i'm not sure but it is not just a secretary is then being in charge of mi6 and yes zorin so yes originally um the storyline did say a comment was coming down interesting though andy so a couple of points here so the whole thing I mentioned earlier about having the same first name when you're having an alias. So what I've done with these two, Andy, I've kind of sprinkled a bit of truth in there, you know, in the mixing pot. But then I've kept it, you know, I've, I've changed it. So there's a little bit of truth in there. So facial recognition software. So it actually turned out, so a former CIA agent, so Tony Mendez, claims that in a view to a kill, when people watch that, it actually inspired bosses in the CIA to start developing facial recognition technology. So it's the other way around. Mm. Instead of CIA inspiring the, the Bond writers, producers, it was the other way around. So Andy, you mentioned about the View to a Kill. Was there ever a Bond film? Um, you didn't think that Bond film was ever nominated for a movie category for the Razzie Award Worst Movie. Interestingly, Andy, there's been two films, but not voted as the worst movie, but 
in one in two categories there's been two nominations for um bond related um categories would you like me to tell you that's i'm, I'm dying to know yeah this is fascinating <laughs> i just i just fight waffled on there so yeah, yeah. one is actually related to this film so tanya roberts who plays stacy sutton was nominated for worst actress wow that is harsh that is harsh I, I thought she did a fine job in this. Yeah, she she wasn't. Uh, I don't think she's the worst. Obviously, we're talking about Bond girl soon, but also another actress, but this time in the supporting actress. So the second film, so Die Another Day, Madonna was the winner of the worst supporting actress award for the Razzie. Do you know? Do you know? As soon as you said supporting actress. I, sh- I immediately thought that's got to be Madonna. And the, so sorry, when I said there was two, I meant there was two films. So Die Another Day has the distinction of being nominated in two categories for the same film at Razzie. So this is harsh on Madonna, but is it harsh? We can talk about it when we get to that episode. So Madonna won the award for Worst Supporting Actress, but she was also nominated for Worst Original Song. Interesting. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. Um, yeah, that that will be a good discussion point in our Die Another Day episode in uh, approximately six weeks' time, I guess that'll be. Shall we? I best write that down on the post-it note, and yeah. you know, in my memory, I forget about you know talking about this. So, Andy, well, no, yeah. don't don't write it down because then you might include it in the quiz, and I'll get hundred percent. <laughs> um, so that's the the question. So, Andy, that was. 50 percent. So um, I think from memory, last week was fifty percent. I can't. I've actually started making a spreadsheet, Andy, of all the um, times you've got a hundred percent or fifty percent. So at the end of the season, I can kind of go recap how you did because I remember you starting strongly, and then obviously I changed the rules. And then it's been a, yeah, it's been a mixed bag, but I think I'm right in saying I am yet to get zero percent. Uh, I think that's yes, right. I think you're right. I I will have to look at my. You need to up list. your game. <laughs> if there's any listeners that want to kind of catch Andy out, feel free to send me some questions that I can pose to Andy on the usual social media accounts. But make sure Andy doesn't send read them first because I don't want to go there. We have four listener questions, and then you just get 100% because you read them before me. That is, that is a good point, yeah. I think what's most, most likely to happen is you'll change the rules again <laughs> to, to suit whatever works for you. So that is the end of the, the quiz. Now, Andy, the rankings review. So let me just bring up the, the spreadsheet. So this is our usual feature where we're going to go through a number of different areas that we're monitoring. So I'm going to kick us off and go through the runtimes, kill count, and the martini watch. So runtime, so a view to a kill is the second, joint second longest movie so far to franchise. And this is tied with Octopussy. So two hours and 11 minutes. So that is still behind on a Majesty's Secret Service, which is reigning at number one. And when it came out, it, it's just stayed at number one. It's not being dislodged at all. So 
Majesty's Secret Service is just strong. And Andy, I'm just looking at some of these films. You know, Octopussy, A View to a Kill, For Your Eyes Only, Moonraker. You know, they are all making up their top six or seven. That is a lot of Roger Moore for your money, isn't it? You're getting a lot of screen time for Bond with it Roger is, yeah. Moore. Other than Thunderball, all the Connery films are so far at the bottom of the list. Yeah, and I'm interested to see, you know, the like you said, the Connery films, which are obviously the older films, so the films from the the 60s and Diamonds Are Forever, 71. It seems like from the 70s onwards, it's just consistently over two hours. And I, I'd be intrigued to see, because we, we haven't done the research yet that far ahead, obviously watching the films each week. What are the run times for, you know, the Brosnan films and the Craig films? Are they going to be... Are, is On a Majesty's Secret Service going to be reigning champion at the end of the 25th episode? I'm intrigued to see how, how you know, if that's going to change or, it, you know, it was released in 1969 and then it's just been there. It's not been dislodged at all by Roger Moore. Next one, as I, I mentioned, is The Kill Count. And I like this one because I love to see how dangerous, how... Um, efficient bond is in in terms of dispatching his enemies so you know at the beginning i mentioned you know five five kills uh, official kills in um, a view to a kill so that is joint 11th highest bond kills out of the 14 films we've seen so far so it's a coincidence it's actually joint with on a majesty's secret service you know five apiece so there's only two films with fewer kills um, than A View to a Kill. And that is Doctor No with four and The Man with a Golden Gun. And now we've seen all the Roger Moore films. So we're obviously keeping track of the kills by actor. So Roger Moore, across his seven movies so far, he has 90 confirmed Bond kills. And that is an average of 12.9 per movie. So at the moment, he's the deadliest Bond in terms of his averages, as well as his outright kills. So Sean Connery is second with 72 kills across his six films, which is an average of 12. And then George Lazenby, obviously the one film with five kills, which is obviously an average of five. So I think, you know, we've said before, everyone says Connery's the the lethal killer Bond, but on paper so far, Roger Moore is not only the, the lover Bond, he seems to be the... The killer as well, I would say. The numbers don't lie. Yeah, that's it. Would be surprising to find that out, but it's official. Roger Moore, deadliest Bond. You heard it here first, unless you heard it somewhere else. And then, <laughs> and then the the last one from me um, before I pass over to Andy is the martini watch, and as Andy mentioned at the top of the pod. There's no martini drinking in A View to a Kill. So, moving over to you, Andy. Yeah, so, Roger Moore introduces himself as Bond, James Bond. And as I mentioned earlier, it was 1 hour 33 and 56 seconds, which is massively longer than any other film we've seen so far. But you can be forgiven for, for him taking that long, because he did introduce himself as Sinjin Smythe, James Sinjin Smythe and as Stock, James Stock. So he's kind of got a bit of a loophole there, but the actual introduction didn't come until towards the end of the film. We're tracking hat throwings and and hat wearing. 
and and this is where there's the asterisk. So we see Bond wearing a fireman's hat and a construction hard hat, and we see him throw Money Penny's hat in the scene at MI6. So he's got two yeses, but it's a technicality there. But um, a nice, clever use of the hats, I would say. We did have we did have Chuck Lee from the CIA, but we've not had Felix Leiter for quite some time now. So that's uh, that's six in a row where Felix has been otherwise engaged. And we mentioned this near the start of the pod, around the box office figures. So A View to a Kill, as an actual box office of uh, just over 152 million, which is quite a respectable amount, and certainly a good return on the 30 million budget. But adjusted for inflation, it's currently bottom of the pile with just over 410 million adjusted. So it's it's quite a way off Thunderball, which is more than three times the amount in adjusted figures and is top of the list. But interestingly, in actual box office takings, is around 11 million behind a view to a kill. So that's the economy at work for you there. Different ways of looking at it, but from an adjusted box office perspective, currently bottom of the pile. So moving on now, Andy, to Bond Girls. So we've got a long list of Bond Girls at the moment. So, you know, as of 14 films, we, we've logged 53 Bond Girls. So I'm going to start from top to bottom this week, Andy. We mix it up. Sometimes we start from the bottom. Sometimes we start from the top. So I'm going to just straight away say I put Stacey Sutton in at 16. So she is my favorite Bond gal in A View to a Kill. So she's obviously played by Tanya Roberts, as we mentioned earlier. And she she just missed, well, I, I would say just misses out of the top 10, but she's not just missed out of the top 10 because she's in 16. But she's below, she's sandwiched between actually two Bond girls from You Only Live Twice and two Bond girls from Thunderball. So I think that's fairly respectable, you know, 16 out of the 53. Next on the list for me is Mayday. So she is a villain, but she's also a a bun girl, and before she dies, she, she turns to the good side, doesn't she? And she sacrifices herself as well to, to get the bomb out of the, the mines. So I think that's not too bad. The middle of the table, isn't it? Just below, on my list, just below Merry Goodnight and just above Naomi from The Spire Loved Me. Now, these next two, I... I sometimes struggle, Andy, with the the Bond girls that only appear in the films. You know, they don't have much screen time, but obviously we we do need to rank them. So, Eva Nova and Kimberly Jones are put in at forty five and forty six respectively. So that is just below Chumi from The Man with a Golden Gun. And Bibi Dow from For Your Eyes Only. And for me, it's, it's screen time, Andy, so I can't really justify putting them too high. But I've just noticed that they're below my favourite Ruby Bartlett as well and Rosie Carver. So, you know, I'm not a big fan of Ruby and Rosie, as you know from those episodes. So for me, yeah, 
this week 16 26 44 46 so i've spread them out you know this week what about you andy where did you rank your four bond girls against mine so in terms of the order i think we've got similar if not the same so i've got stacy sutton as top of the pile for this particular film slots in at number 12 uh, just below Melina Havelock and just above Andrea Anders. Um, so again, nothing much to add in terms of what you said. A very solid entry, plenty of screen time, a good good character, but you know not really enough about her to break into that top five or top ten. Next up, I've got May Day, played by Grace Jones. I've got her in slightly higher than you. I've got her in at twenty three. Um, Again, you know, villain and also Bond girl. Very, I would say, very different. You know, we talked about the outfits and the makeup and uh, the kind of the the powerful physical presence that she has. Very different from a lot of the Bond girls. So it certainly stands out. Um, and I, I think solid but not spectacular in terms of Bond girls, but certainly a memorable character, that's for sure. Uh, and then I've been a bit more generous with my ranking of Polo Ivanova. I've got her in at 31, and, but sim- similarly to you, I've got her very close to Chew Me, so just above Chew Me, or I, I ranked much higher than you did. Again, not really much to add in terms of her character and her role, just you know, very much a supporting part, nothing, nothing really special about her. And, and then finally, I've got Kimberly Jones in 41, just above... Log Cabin Girl and just below Manuela from Moonraker. Again, small bit part character, nothing substantial. Just is kind of there. Now this this I am excited to talk about. We're moving on to the theme song. Uh, A View to a Kill by Duran Duran. This for me was the easiest decision of the lot. Straight in at number one. I thought this this is a fantastic song and rightly nominated for awards that you talked about earlier. I just think this was such a such an iconic memorable Bond song. In some ways quite different to what we've seen or sorry, certainly quite different to what we've heard previously, you know, not the the ballad type that we've heard from the likes of Shirley Bassey and, and Sheena Easton and you know it's not really the the John Barry type theme music. This this as a standalone song is just fantastic, but it works really really well for this film. How do how do you think about this? I agree, Andy. And you know, before when we started talking about doing this podcast, and we said about doing theme songs, in the back of my mind, I think I had this one as number one. Uh, I think there's another one that potentially. I like as well just from you know over the years I've listened to a lot of Bond you know albums you know soundtracks as well and this is the one that I can listen to all the time I never skip it it's just such a, a strong song so yeah for me as soon as we you know we got to this episode yep banged it in straight at number one like you said and what you're saying about ballads as well just looking through the 14 films at the moment you know putting kind of like John Barry to one side You've you've got you know Lulu's version of the Man with the Golden Gun, and Paul McCartney and Wings with Live and Let Die. Otherwise, yeah, they're they're all kind of ballady, aren't they? 
so it is different. It's very 80s. Oh, yeah, it personifies the 80s. And uh, it's interesting, just going back over my rankings, you mentioned Live and Let Die and The Man with the Golden Gun. Where, you know, up until this week, they were in first and last place and now are in second and last place. So it's it's not necessarily the type of song, but they certainly stand out, but for very different reasons. And I think that's what, what helps with you to come in this place is it stands out so much. Um, but it is a, a fantastic Bond song and just a fantastic song. Yeah, no, I, I, I think it's brilliant. And I've watched, um, you know, doing the research as, as well. A lot of the times I've listened to Duran Duran, you know, View to a Kill has been on, you know, CD or MP3. But I've been listening to it on YouTube a lot as well, just watching the old 80s music videos, just kind of this made me laugh really because obviously you know we were born in the 80s but we never had um like mtv or vh1 as a kid so watching kind of 80s music videos is is quite you know new if that makes sense because obviously we were too young when it first came out yeah what's what's old is new again very much yes andy um so next one is opening credits and for me there a lot of, you know I think I said this last week a lot of the Roger Moore ones for me are middle of the table so I put it in exactly middle of the table 7 out of 14 and I've obviously you know at the beginning of the pod I, I, I talked about what it included so you got you know UV neon you got your usual silhouettes Roger Moore is in this again so I don't think for me it warrants anything higher than seven, but it's it's just it's in the middle of the table, and I think you know your rankings earlier on, Andy. I think I'll, they're not harsher, but you I don't know if you if this is the right word. You've not got tired of them, but they've they've seemed to be repetitive a bit more for you. Whereas I I've kind of kept the Roger Moore ones like I said in the middle of the table whereas I'm just looking at your list you've got uh, a number of Roger Moore ones near the bottom I'm just looking at your list so the bottom three are all Roger Moore ones whereas in my list I've got Dr. No from Russia with Love and Diamonds Are Forever so I've not had in the bottom three I've not had a Roger Moore film yet so in the like I said they're all middle table for me they're all very similar what about you? So you're right in terms of my recent reviews of of the the more ones I've, I've, i think i've used the word lazy because it just felt felt like they've been the same each time this one i thought there was enough of a difference to warrant a higher ranking probably helped by the music to an extent but i think they they go hand in hand i think sometimes the, the music has to fit the credits and these fit quite nicely but there was enough nuance in comparison to previous ones to to make me quite enjoy this. So I've got it in at number five, which is the uh, the second highest Roger Moore ranking that I've got behind Live and Let Die, which again stays at, at number one. But yeah, I thought I thought it was a it was a solid effort. And there was a like I said, enough enough of a change from previous ones to make it make it stand out a bit. So a, a quite a solid effort I would say. Yeah, and I was just looking at our list. So 
some of the list, haven't we, Andy? They're, they're quite consistent, or they we might have not put them in exactly the same place, but the the general feeling is is there on the other list. But when you look at the opening credits, we're, we're so different, aren't we, on this particular one that we're ranking? So you know, for example, Living Let Die, like you've said, is your number one, and for Living Let Die, my list is, is number nine. Your bottom of the list is Octopussy at number 14, and Octopussy is number 6. So I don't know. I'm just having a skim through. I don't think we've got one film in the same, you know, one opening credit in the same place. And like I said, you know, some of the other ones, there might be one or two out, but generally they're, they're not far off, are they? No, this, this is really where our, our views start to go away from each other. Um, and causes all kinds of rifts and tension between us, <laughs> <laughs> as I'm sure the listeners can tell. But no, it's, it's uh, we, it's good that we have these different tastes, and it, it makes for a good good debate. And it'd be good to hear other people's opinions of the the credits, whether they they agree with my stance that they they got lazy over time, and this one's enough of a change, or whether there's enough uniqueness in each one to make you enjoy them or not in in different ways. But let's move on now to villains so when we're now like bond girls we've got a big list and we're up to 42 villains in total she's averaging three per film which is quite something so we've got four to add to this now i'm gonna go first and i'm gonna go i'm gonna go top to bottom and i'm just looking down your rankings and we have some very very different points of view yeah so this this could be interesting i've got Mayday as my top villain and I know an argument can be made for Zorin being the main villain of the film but I thought Mayday was just incredible in that villain role so she goes in straight into the top 5 at number 5 but a really solid effort I think there was that that charisma that on screen presence that that physical intimidation factor um, and I just thought she played it brilliantly. So straight in at number five, just above Red Grant from From Russia with Love, and just below Blofeld from You Only Live Twice. So with some great company there. Uh, Zorin does fairly well himself for me, just outside the top ten in at eleven. Um, I liked the kind of psychopathic tendencies. There was there was more of more of an intimidation from a psychological perspective because it, it just seemed a bit unhinged at times, um, which I which I quite liked. I think it, it added a lot to his character and to the film. Then mid table twenty two, I've got Scarpine, you know, bit of a supporting actor, not not the main villain of the piece, but you know, a solid effort, just nothing too much that stands out. And then finally, I've got Doctor Mortner in at thirty one. Just below Blofeld from Thunderball, and above uh, Amelia Leopold Locke from For Your Eyes Only. Again, supporting cast villain. Nothing really much to add. Just a, you know, just an okay effort was there. But um, I'm looking down your list. You have a very different view. What's what say you about the villains of this film? Yeah, Andy. So I'm going to start from the bottom just to be different. So Scarpin. I put in at 35 just because I know 
I don't think he does much. He he's helping Zorin mow down people in the mine, you know, with the guns. But I don't think he really adds much. He's very much a, a secondary henchman. So Max Zorin is you know the main villain, then Mayday would be say the primary henchman, and then Scarpion I would say is the secondary henchman. So I just don't think he adds much and I think you could easily write that character out completely and you wouldn't lose anything from the story. So that's why I put Scarpin at number thirty five. So out of the four villains that you mentioned, you know, just a few minutes ago, he's the lowest one. But Dr. Mortner is only a couple of places, so a number thirty two above him. And I did think about these two, you know, thinking where, you know, where should, who, who deserves to be higher? But then the whole Dr. Mortner, you know, ex-Nazi scientists, you know, doing experiments on people, obviously, you know, it it's mentioned that Zorin has been manipulated and that's why he's a psychopath because of various experiments. So, there's that side of Dr. Mortner that I think just, you know, moves him above Scarpin for me. Even though physically he's not intimidating, he's, he's not um, any kind of match for Bond, you know, in the physical um, point of view. But that whole, you know, baddie scientist in terms of manipulating, you know, genes and doing experiments kind of moves him up for me. Now... We've just got completely different views on Mayday. So, you know, you said Mayday's at number five. So Mayday, for me, is number 22. So that's just one place below Kamal Khan from Octopussy. Now, Mayday, she's all right, I just think. I don't want to say I dislike her, but I don't really like her either. So she is, like I said earlier, she's physically imposing for me because she turns to the good side I would knock her down a couple as well because she's you know she's would you say she's a true villain you know she's she's she sees the light so that's you know from my point of view I knock her down for a couple places on that but she's just crazy and and she even, I'm just looking at the list, Andy, while I'm saying this. Because I was saying, I can't put a secondary henchman, I can't, I can't put a henchman above the main villain. But then I was just looking at the list and I could see that we've got, like, Jaws is above Stromberg in The Spiral of Me. Red Grant is above Rosa Kleb and um, Blofeld in the, the um, from Russia we love so that argument just <laughs> out the window when I look at the, the say the top five of my list because obviously I've got um, henchmen above the main villains but I just look at the other people you know like I say each week I look at the, the people in the list first and then I kind of work up or work down to see where they slot in and for me you know she's better than people like Chang Christatus, General Olov, Largo, but then I'm thinking Kamal Khan, even though I think if you had him side by side 
in kind of pitting them off against each other. Mayday would win, I think, in, in a fight. But Kamal Khan in Octopussy, I think, was a better villain than Mayday as a villain in A View to a Kill. And that's how I look at it. So if you put them against each other in a, in a fight, like in an arena, I think Mayday would win. But Kamal Khan, I think, is a, a better villain for other parts of his his character, if that makes sense. And then Max Zorin. So this is the closest one where we've actually ranked. So you had Max Zorin at number 11. I've got him at 13. And he, he he's a psychopath, and I do like that. You know, we don't have many in here, do we? In, who's actually truly psychopathic. He's a megalomaniac. But is he a bit over the top? He, 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 so he's just below on my list, Mr. Wint and Mr. Kid, who, you know, the, the secondary villains in Damas are forever. But I, I enjoy those two characters a bit more. They're very quirky, but Max Owen's very quirky as well, isn't he? Those those villains are very different to some of the other villains we've we've seen in the, across the the forty two villains that we've got in the list so far. So for me, and you know for you as well, he's not quite good enough to break the top ten, but he's still in the top quarter. He'd be in fighting for the European places in in the Premier League analogy, but he wouldn't be. But it'd be Europa League rather than Champions League, wouldn't it? Yeah, and like I was saying, when I look at the list, I do think he's better, say, than Scaramanga on mine. I'm just looking at you where you've got Scaramanga. You've got Scaramanga a lot lower, but then you've got Zorin just below Nicknack, but I know you like Nicknack, whereas with me, Nicknack was at 33, and Nicknack is in, in your top 10. So we do get some, you know, quite a bit of variation in our villains as well. But I think Christopher Walken's obviously a fantastic actor. It's just Max Owen's not quite there in the top 10 for me. So, moving on to the movies. Obviously, at the top of the pod, I said 5 out of 10. So, where does that leave us? So, obviously, you know, we've said before, we're not having any joint rankings. So, even though in my list I've got four films now, 5 out of 10, we've got to put them somewhere. So, you know, we're not allowed any tie places. So... I've put A View to a Kill out of the 14 films. I pull it in 12. So that's 5 out of 10. So that is one below Diamonds Are Forever, which is 5 out of 10. And then one above Moonraker. So it, it doesn't go anywhere near my... It's not even flirting around the, the top um, Bond films for me. But Andy, um, you obviously said at the pod what you're you know, what you gave it, where does that drop it, um, drop it in your list of 14? Yeah, so our viewpoints are almost polar opposite, because my 7 out of 10 puts this in the top 3 for me, it's the third place just behind Limit Let Die in second and Goldfinger at the top of the pile I thought this was a really strong film I think, like I said, a good way for, for Roger Moore to end his tenure as Bond certainly I agree with some of the points raised about he looks old and it's time for him to go. But I think as a as a standalone film, this was a very, very solid film. Lots that I remember, lots that I enjoyed, and acted and and you know, acted very well. The story was really good. Just I just really, really enjoyed this. Um much more than 
most of his others. There's only Live and Let Die, which was, of course, his first outing as Bond. Which, uh, which again, is another one where we, we have very differing viewpoints. But for me, he started strong and ended strong, so... Uh, it's it's a top three. He's he's in bronze medal position as things stand. But let's let's break that down in terms of what it means by individual actor. So in terms of Roger Moore, this is, obviously this was his seventh of seven. So we've now got the complete list. And for me, this ranks as his second best movie, and uh, I think fully justified in that as well. Um, Slightly different from from your side in terms of where that ranks, isn't it? Yeah, so out of my seven, I've got A View to a Kill in fifth place. So just above, you you like to talk about football tables, Andy. So you could say just below mid-table, just just above relegation zone. It's And I like what we've done here, Andy, when you look at the totals and averages. So, you know, out of the seven films, I've given Roger Moore films 5.9 out of 10. Yeah, man, I've gone with, well, I've got 6.1, because I've got a couple of points extra, so it's still very close in terms of the overall average. I've just got a little bit more spread in terms of variance, and I'm just looking how that compares with other actors as well. Um, it actually, for both of us, puts more at, at the foot of the you know, third of three based purely on ratings, so his films have arguably in arguably been weaker overall but i've just you know i've got i've got a couple more highlights in mine my average is is dragged down by moonraker yeah i'm going to have nightmares about that it's you know if i ever if we ever go through this exercise again where we want to rewatch all the bond films in order i'm just not going to bother with moonraker i think it was that disappointing but it's interesting what that does to the average um, because without that i'd be in a much much higher place than you yeah have you worked that out I, I can work that out it would be if I, if I take Moonraker out it would be a total marks of 40 out of 60 so that would be a 6.7 average rather than the 6.1 average that I've currently got so last one that we want to cover now you know is the the Bond actors and you know as Andy said you know this is Roger Moore's seventh film so he's he's done and dusted now so you know, we've had three Bond actors so far playing Bond. And where does that leave us? So for me, it's there's no change. Sean Connery still number one. Moore, two, and Lazenby, three. How about you, Andy? Does the strong ending for Roger Moore change anything for you? Not really. It just solidifies him as a solid number two behind Connery. And I, and I think, certainly from my side, I'm I'm not treating the portrayal of Bond as the same as the overall performance of the film. I think you can you can have a good Bond in a bad film and you can have a bad Bond in a good film. And of course we move on next week to the next Bond actor being Timothy Dalton. So we'll see where he ranks. If he can you know, make waves at the top of the table with his performances, I guess we'll find out over the next couple of weeks. Uh, so we've come to the end of another fun edition of the rating room and i don't have anything too witty to to end with this week we've been we've been talking for a long time i'm getting tired but i do i just want to call back to i mentioned that roger moore looked like alan partridge in a particular scene 
And that's quite appropriate because next week, the title song for The Living Daylights is sang by... Oh! <laughs> and then we end. <laughs> Fuck up sports. Here we go. Here we go. Bob Walters here. Greg Grosso right next to All me. All right. Locked up sports. 50, 50% of me is better than 100% of a lot of people. <laughs> so, Just ask my wife. Uh, Mike Duncan can't pitch. How do you think he's in finance? No, I think he was like a teller. See? I don't think he was like no, in finance. Like, no, he was in something. That's like saying no. you're a sanitation engineer, no. but you're a janitor. Like, well, he was not in finance. He was a bank teller. Put then, that one in the vault. We should take it. It was me and my wife going to the game. We wasn't selling on sub-up. I was going to try and give it to one of the bums outside <laughs> I was like you want to go to the game he's like what do you mean I go I have a ticket you want to come with me and he goes I can't I have all my stuff but it out is Joe from Saddle River his name is Joe Beningo Joe welcome to the show Guys, Bob, Red, how you doing? Hey, Joe. Uh, some people call him Mr. Met. We know him as Bob Yusuf. Bob, thanks for coming on the show today. My pleasure, Bob. Glad to be with both you and Brett today. Thank you. Host of Baseball Night in New York on SNY, Sal Licata. Sal, thanks for joining the show. No, no problem, guys. How are we doing today? And we got Sweeney Marty. Sweeney, welcome to the show. Hi, fellas. How you doing? And New York Times bestselling author, Jeff Perlman. Jeff, welcome to the show. He is also the host of the Giants pregame, halftime, and postgame show on WFAN. His name is Lance Meadow. Lance, thanks for joining the show. Well, thanks for having me on, Bob. Great. All right, we are now joined by perhaps the greatest special teams coach the NFL has ever seen, Mike Westhoff, joined by the pregame, postgame, halftime, and intermission voice of the New York Knicks and Rangers on 98.7 ESPN Radio here in New York. His name is Pat O'Keefe. Pat, thanks for joining the show. Bob, thanks for having me on the show. How are you doing? Don't, don't let that out. That'll be in the headline. <laughs> See ya! Well, that's this week's episode done. We hope you enjoyed it. Special thanks to the band Sugar Tongue for the theme tune to the rating room. You can find them on all the usual social media channels. And be sure to check out their song The System, available now on Spotify. You can find and message us on Twitter, Facebook, TikTok and Instagram by searching The Rating Room. You'll find all our social media links on our website, theratingroom.com and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Or feel free to drop us an email at theratingroom at gmail.com. Goodbye, thanks for listening and we'll see you next week, right here on The Rating Room. Mm-hmm.